It was in the reign of George III that the aforesaid personages lived and quarreled. Good or bad, handsome or ugly, rich or poor, they are all podcasts now. <laughs> so you're starting with the last thing in the movie. I am, and I'm essentially equating podcasting to death. Yeah, I'm saying yeah. that it is, it's the ultimate fate that uh, lies before all of us. It's unavoidable. It's, right, we'll all have one. Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. Right, that's basically the new Andy Warhol line that everyone will end up having at least 15 episodes of a podcast in the future, right? Right, right. Um, and and God bless him. And uh, yeah, uh, it's my favorite thing in the movie, in, in one of my favorite movies ever. It's the, it's the title, the end title. Is, you that, is of, that silly? No, you sort of spoiled it for me, but I didn't understand how it was going to play out. What did I say to you? You, uh, I mean, because I... Ben and I, producer Ben and I, saw this movie both for the first time recently playing at the Paris Theater in anticipation of doing this episode. We were lucky enough that like things timed out where we could actually see it on a big screen for the first time before right. recording. Um, and you were talking about it to some other guest of ours. I can't remember if it was on mic or off mic about why it was your favorite Kubrick movie. And you just said, you know, the ultimate point of this movie where it doesn't matter. We're all going to end up dead anyway. Right. And yeah, I didn't sure. realize it was literally going to be an epilogue, like title card saying, what does this fucking matter? Um, yeah. Uh, do you remember, we were just talking about this, uh, What? why it was playing at the Paris? We were trying to remember. Yes. Like, no, I, what, I, can, okay. I can tell you. It was, they are doing a director select series. Okay, it is that, sure. Where I guess it's like four or five of the directors who uh, have Netflix movies coming out this fall and winter. And this was one of Bombax's picks. Oh, cool. Oh, okay. But yeah. his right. picks were weird. I want to pull them up because they were not what I expected. And it feels like different people took the assignment differently, where some people were very much curating, these are the films that were the inspiration for my new Netflix movie. And other people were just perhaps using it as an opportunity to get movies they love projected on a big screen. Sure, right. <laughs> yeah, I was saying that I think my husband um, yes. did one of these, but I, I don't know what movies he picked, I, but I think one of them was The Last of Sheila. Correct. But for him, and it was I, like he wasn't yes. going to be in New York, so it wasn't like he it was movies that he was excited to see. Yeah, yeah. His picks all were very uh, Benoit Blanc adjacent. They were very much like mood board, mystery, ensemble films. Um, I'm trying to well, get the full Last of Sheila, that's on a boat, right? That's yeah, like a, and there's there's a, a right, boat yeah, in yeah. Glass Onion. So. And a very young Ian McShane. I should see The Last of Sheila. I've never seen The Last of Sheila. It's fun. Uh, Herbert Ross, yeah. It's uh, yeah, Diane Cannon is playing Sue Mengers, basically. And um, she's that sort of characterization is very influential to the way that Kate Hudson plays her part in Glass Onion. Sue Mengers, R.I.P. The, the Bombac list was Barry Lyndon, High and Low, MASH, Network, Shoot the Piano Player, World According to Garp. I guess now that I've seen <laughs> White Noise, that list makes a little more sense. Mm, that's a good list. It is a good I list. Should, if I had more time on my hands, I'd be going all these things. It's tough. I feel bad that I miss some of these, you know, these chances for nice film. And it's a nice theater, the Paris Theater. And it's great that you saw Barry Lyndon there. Introduce our podcast and our guests. Sorry. <laughs> it's a podcast. Called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. Podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce baby. And today we are talking about 
a film that was that was a bounce when it came out. I feel like I keep on thinking, well, of course, he had this miracle run. Pretty much everything from Dr. Strangelove on is this like miracle run of classics. Sure. But this was the one that was the most poorly received at the time. Right. I suppose it's more that it didn't do very well financially. I mean, it did. I mean, I, like, this, I was just saying to Karina, like it did get right. a Best Picture nomination. Like, and I guess Eyes Wide Shut was maybe well, that's received. Eyes Wide Shut was like, but that. wasn't Eyes Wide Shut like number one at the box office the weekend it, it opens? But then it would just, just like completely ignored by the Oscars, which is yeah. It also Oscars. dropped like a stone at the box office after the first weekend. It, but it's it opened still big in the made, middle of the summer. It did okay. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah, this movie is a bit of a bounce. Sure, that's fine. Or I mean, that's so silly to say about Barry Lyndon. <laughs> yeah, um, well, this is what a bounce at the time. It is obviously a movie sure. that has been completely, I feel, uh, vindicated. I think so. But and uh, uh, Karina, introduce Karina so I can ask her a question. <laughs> Our guest today, a phenomenal uh, a film critic and uh, film podcast host from you must remember this, Karina Longworth, one of the most overdue, long demanded guests. In years over us doing this show. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, Karina. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, we've we've so badly wanted you to do the show for a long time now, and you very much wanted to do Barry Lyndon. Is this your favorite Kubrick, or is this just sort of the one you're most interested in talking this about? This is my favorite Kubrick. Um, and, I mean, for me, it's like this, eyes wide shut, and then there's kind of a drop. <laughs> it's like yeah, those I, two are the, I, much, the top. Yeah, I'm but, with you. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, for a long time, I mean, you know, people are always like, what's your favorite movie, Karina? You must have seen every movie. And um, I think that's kind of a stupid question because I'm just always watching movies <laughs> and like, how could it be kind of fixed in time? You know what my favorite movie is? And so in order to avoid having to give an actual answer, I say that I have three favorite movies, which are um, A Star is Born from 1954, Barry Lyndon and Ghostbusters. Um, because that just like covers all the bases. Although I think I'm going to replace Ghostbusters with Back to the Future. Um, I think Back to the That's... Future is a more perfect movie. Um, but yeah, I so like I, I, you know, would just sort of like drop Barry Lyndon's name in that context. But I actually hadn't. I had watched the movie a lot in my early 20s, but I actually hadn't seen it in probably 15 years until last night. Oh wow! Oh cool. Was it fun to revisit? Did it? It's how so did it fun. It's a comedy, guys. On? It's so funny. It's, oh yeah, I know. It's oh, so it's funny. It's so funny. Oh, Barry's the best. <laughs> <laughs> ben Ben had a real. I mean, we've talked about this. I think on the episodes leading up to this, Ben had a, a, a something of a life changing experience watching this movie. I I feel like this immediately shot up to the list of uh, your favorite of the movies we've ever covered on this show, like within the top five. It's just nice to see yourself on the screen, <laughs> Karina. Like. Five minutes in, Ben turns to me and he goes, these are my people. <laughs> He's just beaming. Uh, are you these, Irish? These, yeah, I'm an Irish scoundrel. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Ben Ben related heavily to the the mid-talented Irish liar, Barry Lyndon. <laughs> and, 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 and who hasn't? Who doesn't watch this movie and kind of go like, ah, oh, yeah, you know. We've all been Life's, there. Life's some breaks, you know. Sometimes they break this way, sometimes they break that way. Nice work if you can get it, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I it is. This is a comedy. This is one of my favorite movies, and I've seen it many times. Mm -hmm. um, it is very funny. But I, the question I was going to ask Karina, and I feel like this is true. It's like I feel like this was the epitome of when the critical community was like, "Yeah, Kubrick makes like coffee table books. He makes the I I cannot deny its beauty, but I am left cold." Right? Like when that becomes that that's sort of like. 
uh, you know, slightly uh, unfair read on Kubrick's filmmaking, like, becomes codified around here. Again, I don't agree with that. It's certainly not in relation to Barry Lyndon, but like I do feel like I do feel like that was the reception. It just seems so strange it, in hindsight because all of his movies are satires. Um, like I can't yes. think of one. I was at like after we watched it last night, I was like asking the people I watched it with, like, uh, is there one I'm forgetting? And the consensus was like, well, Spartacus maybe, but is that even really a Kubrick film? Spartacus, right. Spartacus is not satirical, and that is not really a Kubrick film, and that is maybe the only one, I think, yes. I mean, it depends on what you say about The Shining, I guess, but The Shining is very funny. Yeah, I mean, there's... uh, Yeah, maybe maybe The Shining... I mean, maybe The Shining is a satire of the novel. I don't know. Sure, yes. I, I forget which episode it is, one of the ones we've recorded already but hasn't come out yet, where I I... I say that like a big realization for me uh, watching these movies is that I find the comedy in most of Kubrick's other films funnier than Dr. Strangelove. Not because I don't think Dr. Strangelove is funny, but because I find him putting comedy into a movie like this that is not presenting itself as comedic, but is comedic from beginning to end. It is the thing that surprised me because I feel like the last 10, 15 years I've heard you know, major critical reevaluation of Barry Lyndon where it started to become more acceptable to go. That's his best film. Before, I think that was viewed as a contrarian opinion. You know, this and Eyes Wide Shut are the two that it really feels like have gotten their due in the last 10 or 15 years and sort of a sea change. And I would always hear people say, the secret to Barry Lyndon is that it's like really funny. And I assumed it was going to be one of these things where it's like, well, it's operating satirically on a very quiet wavelength. It must have been missed by audiences at the time. And then you watch this thing and it's pitched like a comedy from beginning to end. It is so plainly a comedy. I don't understand how it was ever misread. Well, I do think that some the events that happen, especially in like the last half hour, are tragic. Yeah, the, um, yeah. and, and I it's do think like if end. there is any sort of like genuine emotion to be had, it's, you know, in... Brian dying and yes. um, sort of understanding that like whatever good is in Barry Lyndon was in him as a father. Although so many things have to go wrong for that kid to get to the horse. Um, like so many people have to fall just, down on the job. Just don't get him the horse. He's so small. <laughs> he's a slight child. It's also it's not it's just the, that he's nine years old. He's he's small. He's a little kid. It's the gone with the wind thing. If a little kid yep. mounts a big horse, I, mm. I just start covering my eyes. Nothing good will come of this. There's a reason ponies exist. <laughs> and he had one, but he, he, had one. he, had he wasn't nice satisfied with his pony. It's, it's like the whole metaphor of the whole movie. Not to jump to the kid, with, you know, but mm-hmm. that's one of my favorite kid performances. And totally. that obviously, I don't usually, whatever, I don't like a lot of kid performances. And uh, I've always loved uh, little, little Brian. He's, 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 and I think he never acted again. Or if he did, he barely acted like he's just a perfect little, like Fauntleroy with his little hair. I was astounded by and felt is one of the best child performances I've ever seen is little Bullington. Yeah. Little Bullington is also good. Is incredible because he really has to set the stage for the entire second half of the movie. He doesn't have that much screen time, but in a couple scenes, a couple lines, and more than anything, just his glances, his body language, the tension he creates. Like, this kid just has such absolute contempt for this fucking guy, and the next hour and a half of the movie is just going to spin off of that. 
Karina, when did you first see Barry? Or Karina, what what's your Kubrick your your Kubrick take? I guess or, or yeah, yeah what are your, your general guy relationship general? to Kubrick. Yeah. It's so hard doing life. this guy on our podcast because it's like, what are you what are you supposed to say? But you, yeah, do you, no, do you I mean, I just think he's one of the Stan? greatest and like one of the most fascinating characters. And the fact that there aren't that many movies um, makes each one kind of more important and more interesting. Um, I. I'm actually not sure if I've seen every single Kubrick film or not, but I've definitely seen most of them. And yeah, as I said, like it's this and Eyes Wide Shut. And then, you know, it it's like there's kind of two empty stairs maybe. <laughs> and then it would be like for me, The Shining and um, Dr. Strangelove. And, and then again, there's like maybe two empty stairs and then there's kind of everything yeah. else. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that, I think. Oh, well, 2001, are you less, you're less... Well, 2001 is like, 2001. I think maybe I just kind of burnt out on it when I was a teenager. Like, I was a, a pretty precocious teenage stoner. And, um, like, you know, at age 13, hanging out with 17-year-olds and doing things like getting really stoned and going to midnight shows of 2001. Um, and so it's like, it's something where I, I probably haven't seen that movie since I was like 26. So that's uh, 16 years. Um, and I just don't know that I will have a reason where I feel like I need to revisit it. So it's just not something I think about very often. But of course, it's a masterpiece. It's like I'm saying like, oh, there's a couple of empty stairs. But it's like it's just because they're all like on Masterpiece Mountain. Pretty much. Yeah, there's there's like a collection of the bulk of his movies in the middle for me where I feel like, well, this is undeniably a masterpiece. I recognize the excellence of this film. But Barry Lyndon and Eyes Wide Shut are the two that feel like they sort of cut through to me on a deeper level where I feel genuine warmth and affection for them. That's the other funny thing about this movie is you saying, David, this notion of, oh, this is him at his most austere, distant, painterly, Again, I don't hermetic. agree. No, no, no. It's that more was like the when sentiment. you see the reviews yes. or whatever. Yes. No, yes. no, I know. But I feel mm -hmm. like this is kind of his warmest film in a bizarre way. And especially if you look at it being buttressed by 2001 Clockwork Orange on one side, Shining Full Metal Jacket on the other side, there is like a gentleness to this movie, despite it being right. deeply, deeply cynical. And sad. It's a sad and movie. Sad. Yeah, but the, but I I think there is a a greater sense of human emotion in this film than the ones on either side. Yeah, I would agree. But I also think this is like one of my most this movie gets such an emotional reaction out of me in all way. Like it's this is Barry Lyndon. This is my favorite. It's uh I <sighs> I, you know, I had a friend, I had a wonderful experience with Barry Lyndon recently, which I, I think I first saw it in college and I glommed onto it for, I, I, you know, I glommed onto it immediately, but I had an experience recently. I have a friend who loves The Shining. He's not like a big movie buff. And we were at, uh, in Vermont, it was late. There was like a fire roaring and he was talking to me about The Shining and I was like, have you ever seen Barry Lyndon? And he was like, no. And I'm like, I'm just going to put it on. And I put it on. And, you know, the first scene, obviously, is him digging in a woman's uh, boobs for a ribbon. Yeah. As, and he just as looked at me. And he, yeah. And he looked at me. And he was like, what is this? Like, why did you? And I was just like, I just, just, you know, let's just stick with it. And he like, within the next month, watched Barry Lyndon like five times. Like it, it, he caught the bug. And like that, I do feel like this movie has that weird hypnotic uh, quality or, or however you want to, maybe it's just, it's entrancing. Like. It's just so easy for me 
to to have this thing on and to to be you know just sort of drinking it in until the last half hour when I get unspeakably devastated devastated especially now that I have a kid. Um, but uh, but anyway, don't, it's, don't it's let her ride a horse. It's very easy. Don't let her ride a horse. It's the one thing Ben's parents clearly did correctly was not letting him ride a dang horse until his thirties when I was ready to. When you were ready, when you were adult. No horses, no skiing. I don't like any of that stuff. No, no. Yeah. Uh, David, Karina, can I ask rem- you a question? So yes. when you like first saw this movie, was it on two mm-hmm. VHS tapes? It may have been on DVD. Mm. It may have been on the white DVD. You remember the sort of the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the white Kubrick director, the masterpiece collection or whatever it was called. Did you watch yes. it on VHS, Karina? Yeah, I worked at a video store. Um and I, I decided that I was just going to, like, take home all the movies one by one that were on two tapes because those were, like, probably important. Right, <laughs> and right, so right. It may, they always looked because they were so big. Those, like, yeah. brick, you know. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of them I had seen before. You know, like, my dad had had, like, the two tapes of The Godfather and the two tapes of um, Once Upon a Time in America and stuff like that. But there was, you know, some that I hadn't seen, and Barry Lyndon was one of them. And so I took home the two VHS tapes and— um, like we, I kept, cause at my, the video store I worked at, like you could take home whatever you wanted. You didn't have to check them out on the computer. And, um, I just kept it at my house for a really long time. Cause I just kind of kept watching it. And so nobody yeah. could check out Barry Lyndon for a while. <laughs> were people coming up and being like, Hey, do you have Barry Lyndon? And you were like, Every no. Every now and then. Yeah. And I would be like, Oh yeah, it's <laughs> lost. I don't know. This is also a movie that has its proper intermission, its proper break, mm. where the the separation of the two VHSs is clean. I I would imagine, like it it works and, and, as two meals. Yeah, I know the separation in the story is so perfect. Right, that's what I'm saying. Uh, it's yeah. it's yeah, designed totally. to be split up into VHS. To, it's almost like that was Kubrick's intent, the <laughs> ideal way he wanted it to be watched. I definitely did first watch it on like a ten inch TV, though. That would be my if I was watching it in college. I'm almost certain. And and I loved it all the same. I mean, we we weirdly haven't touched on this at all, but that's this constant source of relitigation with Kubrick's films is what is the correct aspect ratio, because he was often trying to account for making images that would work well both on a big screen and on a TV. As much as he was framing for theaters, he would sort of make sure there was the contingency plan of it will work. On VHS, especially once that took off. Mm. And I feel like it's always you would hear about Vitaly fighting Warner Brothers, fighting fans over what was the way he wanted it to be seen. And should home video presentations of the movies now be the theatrical presentations or what he approved for home video now that home video is obviously much higher fidelity and screens are bigger and all of that. Uh, Yeah, they had like pan and scan. That was like the only way to see it. Uh, right these like sort of carefully put together pan and scans for like 2001 or whatever right that was he would the video yeah right so uh barry linden uh karina do you know where this comes in his let me let me look at our research here yeah you know where this comes in in kubrick's career obviously it's after clockwork orange and right it comes out of he's trying to make napoleon that's that's what's happening for him in the early 70s he's ready to make his period epic right right and uh i feel like we talked about this on the 2001 episode griffin right the or we've been going wildly out of order so it's hard to now chart Mm -hmm. when we've talked about what um but mgm you know was going to fund the napoleon movie that 
didn't end up happening, obviously. This movie is Warner Brothers, right? Yes, this yes. is Warner Brothers. Um, but uh, they were going to start. I, I, we've talked about all of this, but like, you know, he read every single book. He wanted Jack Nicholson to play the role. Uh, he had, was scouting locations for Napoleonic battle scenes, everything like that. And it just never came together because MGM got spooked because big costume war epics were just starting to flop over and over again at the box office. There's these movies like Waterloo and Charge of the Light Brigade and Sailor from Gibraltar, like all these movies that just didn't work. Yeah, Hollywood never really got over the failure of Waterloo. It was kind of their Waterloo. All right. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So um, there's some, I guess there's always been like, because this movie has people in tri-corner hats, I think people have long thought that Lyndon like took his Napoleon research and started putting it into Lyndon, but that's not true at all. Obviously, this is set way before Napoleon was alive and it's just kind of the classic thing every time you dig into like hey why did Kubrick make this next he's always just like oh I really like the book like because he's always drafting off of a book Mm -hmm. and he's always just pulling things off of the shelves and finally saying that you know he like tapped into the story has anyone read Karina, have you read Barry Lyndon by Thackeray no I've read Vanity Fair um, so have I I haven't read this one Uh, Vanity Fair is the only one but like uh, the only Thackeray I've ever read, but like that he is, he, I feel like he's the king in the Victorian era of like the antihero or whatever, or the the non heroic novels, right? That's sort of his thing. He he would he would dare write these big epics that were not about particularly sympathetic characters. Yeah, Trollope did that too, but but uh, Trollope stuff Trollope. was like serialized and then became novels largely. I God, this is I had a major Trollope phase <laughs> as a kid. What's that? You know that whole that whole um series the uh the Palliser novels right mm-hmm. I, I read like i read like four of those i should Palliser goes should to camp Palliser scared stupid <laughs> exactly yeah. the way we live now uh, is kind of great the way we live i mean now, it's like this big but i think i i think i saw like a bbc way we live now possibly with david suchet is that right that i think that checks out Yes, I th- and I think I that is my only... Yes, David Suchet, here he is. Ah, yeah, this looks fun. Matthew McFadden, Shirley Henderson, Killian Murphy. I'm sure this rules. I should rewatch this. <laughs> um, but anyway, no, I've never read Barry Lyndon, but Kubrick picks it off the shelf. He had said at one point he considered turning Vanity Fair into a film, but he couldn't figure out how to compress it into a feature length um, because it's so sprawling. Um, but I guess Barry Lyndon because it's focused on this one guy and it's got the, the through line of of his journey through life uh he was he was much more uh able to pick this is this is a, one of the rare like written and directed by kubrick's like no co-writer yeah yeah but uh, you know, i you know you're he's not right handing it off to someone yeah you're right david that you know Lyndon as a fictional text and Napoleon as a real guy are not so similar beyond being different eras. Their narratives are different. There are certain, you know, commonalities. But it does feel similar to Full Metal Jacket coming out of him trying to make a Holocaust movie. Like his head is in a very general space. Mm. He's obsessed with a subject he cannot totally figure out how to get his mitts around. And then he finds a sort of simpler, cleaner narrative that allows him to explore some of the subjects he's been thinking on, but perhaps with a lot less of the the pressure, you know? 
Like, he's able to make a period film about society and hubris here with this guy without the having to stage Napoleon's entire life and read 8,000 books, as you're saying. Like, the, the years he spent trying to figure out, to, to give himself the confidence to feel like he was ready to make Napoleon versus just reading Barry Lyndon once and then going, oh, I could just adapt this. I could just take this book copy it into a screenplay and make this right now. This narrative mm. is ready. Just. <laughs> Just, you know. Easy. Yeah. Um. Yes. Uh, he got, this is very cute. He got a big uh, pile of art books for the references for everything they wanted to make, all the clothes, the furniture, the vehicles, and everything like that. Uh, he said that, quote, he had to very guiltily tear up a lot of beautiful art books uh, they were all fortunately still in print, so it felt a little less sinful. It's just funny to think about Kubrick feeling guilty doing this. Just um, ripping pages and crying. <laughs> right. Uh, and um, yeah, this is uh, this is one of those things where because he's the only credited screenwriter, no one really saw a script. It's not like The Shining or Eyes Wide Shut or whatever, where he's handing it to someone, they make a script for him, and then he starts tinkering on it uh, himself. Base numerous people involved in the movie just say like he was just working from the book. Mm. Um, you know, clearly he did write a script, he had a draft or things like that. But I guess, uh, you know, his his he really was just taking the book. I know I really want to read the book. Um, but he did change the the ending. Um, in the book, Barry gets pensioned off, uh, and. Uh, Billington comes back after that happens and finds Barry and beats him up, <laughs> which sounds wow. fun. So the whole uh, duel is is Kubrick's creation. Uh, yes, uh, he just thought it was not credible. Um, I think he he wanted a slightly more poetic ending. I guess the the ending in the book is truly just like Billington beats the shit out of him and Barry dies in prison a drunk. Which is just a maybe just a little too bleak, maybe yeah. I don't know. Yeah, uh, and he really liked the idea of having a big duel in a barn with pigeons. That was that was what he wanted the ending to be. But then also, uh, but like the, the last image we have of Barry is that like a freeze frame of him bent over. I mean, that's yeah, like entering a carriage. It's yeah. a pretty funny the, punchline. The freeze frame always startles me i don't know if you guys felt the same like because yeah, it's yes. it's so out of out of nowhere in the visual like it, language it's out of, the, of the language yeah i it is i i understand where he's coming from where uh it it feels too clean to have this guy end up behind bars in that way like the the, the notion of the greatest punishment for this guy isn't being held accountable for his crimes in a prison it's being sort of made meaningless. Yeah. You know, it's like, here you go off in a, a carriage off to the countryside and you're just no longer allowed to speak to any of these people ever again. Also, he's like crippled and living with his mom. Yeah. Right. I, I, I also just feel, though, I like that it's like, if Barry Lyndon blows through your life, you're going to end up writing a check to him guiltily at the end of the year, like every year being like, God, Barry Lyndon, remember that? You know, like that that should be the the the, the impact of Barry Lyndon. Right. But the fact that you end with the check writing. Yep. You know how how much he hates it. Right? Oh yeah. Of You're course. not seeing, you know, you don't end the movie with him opening up an envelope, getting a check and going, yes, it's that time of the month again. 
No, I mean... The indignity of this, all he ever wanted was to leave where he came from. And he just ends up right back where he started, but worse off than ever. And the money's not going to make him feel any better. No, of course not. He's he's miserable, and he has one leg. And he's not famous anymore. He's not cool anymore. Yeah. Um, yes. The, but no, the other massive change that he makes is that the novel is told from Barry's first person perspective. Uh, and he is like a classic unreliable narrator who's always going on about how great he is. And Kubrick decided that was not going to work in a movie. And he wanted the, uh, you know, the objective narrator in the movie. And Ryan O'Neill despised that. And it's why Ryan O'Neill hates the movie. Um, because Ryan O'Neill didn't know that was gonna, I guess, be put in the movie. He didn't know okay. that would be the narrator. Yes, was it was that a change that was made midstream, or did O'Neill just not know? I think O'Neill just didn't know. Um, it's, but, it's just yeah, very odd of Ryan O'Neill to hold contempt for anyone. He's <laughs> such a notoriously chill, collaborative guy. Now, Karina has Ryan. Ryan has come up on you. Must remember this, right? Surely, at some well, point, yeah, because right? I did a whole season about Polly Platt. You did the Bogdanovich, um, right? You so, did the Polly Platt. Season. Yeah, um, I mean, he wouldn't talk to me. I tried to. to oh, what a surprise! Him and talk to me. <laughs> I mean, I just have the impression that he is possibly like the most unpleasant star in history, or at least the most famously unpleasant guy to work you know, with in, I mean, in maybe, like Hollywood history. Maybe there's a top 10. Like, I, I almost don't <laughs> want to give him too much credit um, for being the worst. But, you know, I just find him so funny in this movie because it seems like he's not in control of his performance. And, and because yes. it just feels like Kubrick is like, okay, Ryan, so in, in the next one, do less. And, and you just see, like, there's some shots where it's just like Ryan O'Neill, like looking confused and like not really understanding <laughs> what's happening, and it's just so perfect. It's, I mean, it's such good uh, uh, meta casting, or not even meta casting. I mean, just, you know, I think there are clever ways in which he's using Ryan O'Neill's baggage as a movie star up until this point, but it, it also is you're casting a guy who basically feels the way that Barry Lyndon does. He so badly wants to prove that he is a serious actor worthy of being the lead in a Kubrick movie. And Kubrick's essentially saying, like, just just be yourself. (laughs) Just sit there, and I'll use you the way I want to use you. Totally. And it's like, I mean, and and then it's like this crazy thing where, like, this model is in the movie with him, and it's like she comes off as giving almost a better performance. Absolutely. Undeniably. But but he's perfect in this. It, it's I mean, the he other is. thing I'd heard about this movie for so long is, oh, Barry Lyndon would be good if Ryan O'Neill wasn't so bad in the lead role. It's like one of those movies marred by terrible casting in the lead role. And it's one of those things where it's like no one else could have played this. He is perfect. You can argue that he's not a great actor, which I would say. And I don't think this is one of his best performances, but it's the best application of him in any movie. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think Bogdanovich got like better performances out of him. Yes, but I agree. Like, pa- yeah. Paper Moon is probably his best performance, right? Yeah, and yeah. what's up, Doc? Yeah. He's great. At, those are the two best. Like, yeah. I give him credit for what he's doing performances in his career. I would say. But I think that you know, because the casting is so perfect in this, even though you know he, what he's showing off is not like virtuoso acting, there is a star power that comes through. Um, yes, I and agree. So. 
you know, the some of the people I watched it with last night, like, were not that familiar with his filmography. And they're like, did he make any movies after this? And yes, in fact, he made quite a few, but they're just none of them are classics on the level of this or the Bogdanovich movies. I think when he's playing Bogdanovich in Irreconcilable Differences, it's really funny. Um, yeah. But that's that's kind of the only one I would point to as being something, you know, worthwhile. No, this is the end of, like, his lucky streak yeah. decade. Yeah, I, I, the only— yeah. The only other movie I like him in is The Driver, and that is a similar, which is, that is, sorry, that is after Barry Lyndon. And that is a similar, like, give me nothing, Ryan, like, blank, 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 like, you know, right. just, just be a good looking guy, uh, which he is good at. There's that anecdote I think about all the time. Uh, interview David Fincher did talking about the Girl with the Dragon tattoo casting process and how belabored that was. And it was, you know, it was like the Scarlett O'Hara thing of a year of the press breathlessly writing about every single actress who had tested or read for that. And all the people who got close, like Scarlett Johansson and Natalie Portman, until he landed on Rooney Mara. And he said, the thing was, I saw all these people who were really, really good actors and were giving really good auditions and were transforming themselves into this character. But Rooney Mara was the only person who felt fundamentally weird in the way I wanted the character to be just in her basic being. And I think you need to cast people based on whatever the core fundamental quality you need is for that character. Because if it's three o'clock in the morning and you're on a 200th take and you're a hundred days into production, you need the thing that's still going to be there in them that cannot be, you know, beaten out of them, that they're never going to be too tired to deliver the core essence. And it's like, that's the Ryan O'Neill casting here. I, I forget who it is. And I've quoted this before, but some entertainment writer, it might've even been just a tweet asking, is Ryan O'Neill the most fundamentally unlikable actor to ever become an A-list star? And it is funny to think about because outside of Love Story, which is almost bizarre that the movie is such a big hit with him in it, the things like the Bogdanovich movies kind of riff off of him being a shitbag, you know? And it's not like he was this sort of cad where it's fun to watch him, like, work his way through situations. It's not like he was Gene Hackman where it's like, oh, he's a compelling son of a bitch. He just always was this guy who was kind of annoying and insincere and arrogant. Yeah, but in a weird way, that sets up really good, interesting female performances. Yes. You know? Yes. Um, as like in, in just in these like four movies that we just mentioned, like Pretty uh, Pretty Woman, Paper Moon, uh, What's Up Dog, Barry Lyndon and Irreconcilable Differences. It's like all of them have female performances that like pop out and and that um, he's kind of like what he lacks. It allows the, like the actress to provide. That's that's an amazing Yes. I think yeah. even love story, you could say that. Yeah. 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 No. And it, it is. I mean, you know, I, I think I don't give him credit for it. I don't think it's out of generosity, you know, but people talk a lot about major A-list male stars not wanting to take roles where they're secondary to the female lead, where they're supporting her story. I mean, certainly I, he didn't think that that was what was happening no. in Paper Moon. And, you know, uh, allegedly he punched Tatum O'Neill when she got an Oscar nomination and he didn't. On the set of this movie. Yeah. I mean, I believe the reason we know that story is because of Kubrick's wife yeah. telling it. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. I, I mean, I think it was a thing that drove him crazy that every time he made a film, the other person popped harder than he did. But it is then crazy that he had this run of working with good directors on wildly, you know, beloved films with incredible performances. And then, yeah, it it does feel like he just sort of 
self-destructed after that. And and yeah, it is this weird combination. I'm mean, talking about like, is he the most despised actor in the history of Hollywood? Is he the most toxic, you know, movie star ever? Maybe he's not number one, but it's the odd combination of there are people who were really charming and compelling on screen, and then you hear nightmare stories about them. It's rare that there's a guy like this where his basic movie star quality was being kind of unlikable. And then also you hear that he was even worse offset. And yet he was a leading man. He wasn't playing the heavy, you know? He's an odd, odd fucking figure. Yeah, he is. Uh, I do love him in this movie. He does seem like a huge asshole. Um, He hated that he wasn't narrating it. He said, I didn't see the movie for a year and a half. When I did, I didn't know what I saw. I still don't. Some people like it. Some people fall asleep. But his take is... I was supposed to narrate the movie. Kubrick got some bored Englishman to do it. And if he's bored, what's the audience going to be? Weird take, but okay. What's the audience going to be? Having a great time laughing at you. That's the answer. (laughs) Having a fucking ball rolling in the aisles. Uh, Stanley, he said Kubrick wrote him a mean letter because he was mad that uh, Ryan didn't like the movie. And I wrote him back saying, look, the movie I saw was like walking through a museum, which is all right, but we shot an adventure story. And that was it. But uh, Ryan O'Neill thought he was uh, making an adventure story. Like well, the guy does have an adventure. Alive. He joins the army, and uh, then he's in a different army. There are duels. There's romance. But like, does he think this movie is like an inspirational tale of this guy on the come up? Uh, yeah, maybe he does. Uh, I mean, on some level, end, it is. Yeah. Like on some level, it is. Like you know, you know, th- like. The scoundrels, you know, six triumph and tragedy. Yeah. Right. I totally understand why he would see that. He's like, I mean, he learned how to sword fight, you know? Yeah. Sure. He probably thought he was Errol Flynn. He goes pretty far. He becomes a gentleman. I mean, he he does. When you meet him in the beginning, you don't see him as a gentleman. And then his mom fucks everything up for him. Kind of. Yeah. I, I, I still like his mom, though. She's fun. Oh, she's cool. Uh, it's it's another thing that maybe helps this performance is that he fundamentally thinks he's in a different movie than he is. That he is playing it so yeah. thoroughly as the hero of the picture. Like, he does not play conniving. It's in his core being, perhaps, his competitiveness. Um, no, he but just, he needs to be stupid enough to do yes. the stuff he does. Does that make sense? Like, he is kind yeah. of smart and clever in some ways, but he also needs to be so stupid that he'd be like, yeah, I'm like a captain. You know, I'm captain. I'm captain soldier. And I'm going to give some papers to general army. And, uh, Having no idea where Bremen is. <laughs> right, exactly. I lo- like that. You got, he's got to be a little dumb. Um, at the end of the day, by the way, O'Neill's major take on this movie is I was very well paid. My deal was for 18 weeks. After 18 weeks of work, we'd done about four pages of the script. And so everything <laughs> after that was overtime. And I was just like earning. Hey, that cool. Yeah. That cool. It's it's one of the reasons that a quote unquote better actor in this role would be to the detriment of the movie is that there's something kind of inscrutable about Barry and that he's just kind of operating on animalistic instincts, right? Like he wants to move up. He wants to get rich. He wants to get laid. And you never can see the gears turning in his head. I mean, what you're saying, David, about he kind of needs to be this stupid to believe that he can get away with everything. And every time he makes a move, it just feels impulsive. 
It feels reactionary. There's no strategizing in his head. He's never thinking big picture. He's just constantly trying to move forward and move up. Uh, let's yeah, let's talk about the plot of the movie, right? I don't know. Let's go through it a little bit. Um, I, I, Barry- I want to ask one fundamental question before. Sure, go ahead. We get into the plot of it just as we're you know closing the book on on Ryan O'Neill's anger about not being the narrator. I can't speak for how the novel works on its own, but I think the version of this movie that is narrated by him from his perspective would be so oppressive. Like, I do not want to live in this guy's head. I want to observe him almost from an anthropological level, which the narration in this movie provides you. Like, it feels like you're watching a nature documentary about this resilient species, but could you imagine having to like listen to this guy's inner monologue? No, it would be so boring. What if he was? No, I mean, yeah, it would. And just it would exhausting. Not function. I don't know, Karina. I don't know what well, you think. I don't know like, how I, much yeah. of a inner monologue he has. You know, right? Um, yeah, I don't know that he. I, I mean, I think it is like basically Ryan O'Neill saying, "Like I was, it was an adventure." Then I had another great idea. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, yeah, and women love me. <laughs> right, then I met this lady, and she thought it was super cute. And so I this just guy was loving around. all my stories. He was eating it up. In your research, did Ryan O'Neill say, like, I read the book, and I thought it was going to be like that? Or do you think he didn't bother reading the book? He, he, <laughs> I, he certainly is citing the book that you know like in the book Lyndon narrates his own deranged view of things and i thought that's what made the story work he was an 18th century crackpot so that makes it sound like he read the book now maybe he just read a script that was going off of the book i don't know but like i guess he certainly had a picture in his head of quote unquote playing an 18th century crackpot and as you said like he took it seriously he sword fought he's obviously attempting an accent <laughs> uh, you know, sort of not that well, in my opinion. I don't really care, but uh, and uh, I but I kind of wonder, like, I feel like Kubrick's the kind of guy where, like, if if O'Neill like came in with like a like a thick accent, Kubrick would be like, Ryan, stop doing that voice, and like yeah. maybe they just compromised think- on what is in the movie. It seems like a lot of Kubrick's direction was like, chill out and be yourself, yeah, um, which. Uh, is fine. Uh, Kubrick's Kubrick's quote here is, he looked right and I was confident he possessed much greater acting ability than he'd been allowed to show in any of the films he'd previously done. Classic Kubrick quote. Classic, like, weird neg. Where he's <laughs> like, he's like, I mean, you're not good in movies that uh, you've done, but I assume you can be. Um, and Kubrick's very much just like, we got on fine. I mean, the the funniest story in this research is that, like, and you hear this about from a lot of people who work with Kubrick. It's like when we hung out, we would just talk about sports. Like that's that's what we yeah. did. Uh, we just talk about football or whatever. And then Marissa Berenson says, like, he he barely talked to me. He approached me with great hesitation. He would write me letters instead of coming up to talk to me. With Ryan O'Neill. They would talk about sports and quote, this is her exact, her exact words, the way men do among themselves. Uh, but for Marissa Berenson, he would send letters that were very personal and arrived whenever that he felt it was necessary to communicate with me. 
So uh, Stanley Kubrick, a bit of a shy guy with with uh, absolutely stunning, striking ladies. I don't know. Yeah, but also uh, most actors. I mean, the the anecdotes we found on yeah. Eyes Wide Shut feel like the only time we're reading stories of him actually feeling comfortable talking to actors. No, he mostly yeah seems fairly shy with actors. Not bossy exactly. Although obviously he would make them do it over and over again, but that's different. That's sort of him searching for whatever it is he wants. It's it, like. it's almost him searching for the thing he cannot figure out how to communicate to them. You know, the 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 take after take after take is I'll know it when I see it. I don't know how to put it into words. I mean, I, we haven't really talked about the we could, we should talk about the movie, but like I, I feel like people know the other side of things more, which is the movie took a year to make. It was entirely shot on location, so it was extraordinarily expensive for the time, and obviously. It's shot with like natural light and candles and they had to use insane like NASA lenses. Well, we can get into this stuff later, but um, I feel like this is what Barry Lyndon almost became notorious for in a way that almost obscured what's so wonderful about the movie um, is that it's like, oh, did you know like all of the sort of like Herculean technical effort that went into making it? Uh, and obviously all that stuff is fascinating, but it also helps it feel like this hermetic art, you know, hanging on the wall in a museum, right? But, but it's also... Uh, but look, it's not. The, the four movies, you know, on either side, uh, 2001 Clockwork Orange, Shining, Full Metal Jacket, are all movies that are so crisp, like so kind of like knife sharp, ice cold, uh, incredibly controlled, you know, uh, absurdly uh, sharp focus... This movie has this this warmth to it visually that isn't just the the use of candles and everything, but the fact that they're, you know, the, the low light gives it this softness and this warmth. And I do think the compositions in this movie, as much as they're painterly, don't feel as controlled. They do feel a little more organic and romantic to me. It feels bizarre for this to be the movie where people finally got fed up and said, oh, he's too caught up with his images. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's the best. Uh, it begins with uh, Barry Lyndon uh, in, in 1750s Ireland. His dad is dead, uh, killed in a duel, right, over the sale of horses or something. Uh, he's a bit of a mama's boy. God bless. You know, <laughs> his mom's great. Um, and he's in love with his cousin Nora, and he's, uh, you know, playing flirty ribbon games with her, but she's got to marry um, a very priggish captain. Uh, I love that guy, Leonard Rossiter, um, who plays Captain Quinn. He's got such a face, you know, the whole time when he's like, I'm trying to do his face. Him guys, dancing. Like that, you know? Yeah. He's so good. There's such good physical comedy. He's such a goof. And then the the incredible joke later where Ryan O'Neill where Barry Lyndon has to say, like, wait, are there two Captain Quinns? <laughs> the idea that this guy makes such a distinct impression <laughs> that there could be no other guy with this name, <laughs> you know, with the, who, who could be mistaken for this man, possibly. I, the ribbon scene is, you know, the moment where I was surprised by how immediately the movie is playing fully in a comedic realm. Because Kubrick just lets that scene go on forever. Right? It's really long. Yeah. That is when my friend it's... is turning to me, being like, what have you put on? Right, what the fuck is this? Can I ask you guys a uh, question, which, like, the, I don't know how horny this podcast gets, but 
Oh, very. Please, go ahead. Yeah. Do you think that he has sex with his cousin, or do you think he's a virgin when he meets the German lady? I, I, he does not operate like a virgin in that scene with the German lady. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder if he has sex with the cousin or not, but I don't feel like that's his first time. If I know the Barry the way I do, I have a feeling. <laughs> Yeah. 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 I th- I think he's fucked. Or at least someone. they they like roll around. They're they're rolling around in the hay, right? Like doesn't the whole the whole Barry Lyndon like you roll with that guy in the hay at the very least. Maybe you're not going all the way. But... He's not stopping at ribbon stuff. He's going further <laughs> than that. Yeah, and yeah, it's definitely. just like if he's the the scene with the German lady, he is so m- masterful in his manipulation of that situation. That is not someone who feels the pressure of, fuck, fuck, am I about to lose my virginity? Like, that doesn't have the urgency <laughs> but of some I high school idiot. But I wonder he's, like, such a sociopath that he's like, I'm going to play this. Like, I, I do this every day. He, to me, has the sociopath energy of someone who, like, lost the virginity at 12, though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, my whole thing is there was nothing to do back then. It's so boring. It's so boring that you can have an afternoon just like putting a ribbon on someone and then trying to get it. Um, like surely people were just having sex, right? I know it was against the rules, but like what else are you that supposed to all do all day? Yeah, yeah sure. Now, right. Don't go yeah, having sex on me. And but it's like, fuck, but now so what am I Karina, to do? you th- you think he's a, a virgin who's such a gifted liar that even if he loses his virginity at the age of, you know, whatever, 25 He's still just kind of like a smooth operator. Well, first of all, I have no idea how old he's supposed to be at any point. Neither do I. But neither do I. I assume that when we first meet him, he's somewhere between like sixteen and eighteen. But who knows? Mm -hmm. Because Ryan O'Neill's what thirty-seven. So yeah. So basically, like, one of the things that I love about the character and also why Ryan O'Neill is perfect casting is that he becomes this guy who's like, I I know I can just get it. Like, I know women just like I know how to just get it from women. Um, but I'm it's what's interesting is that Kubrick like doesn't show us any kind of transition between like him being sort of an absolute goober with his cousin and Trembling. and then like, you know, being this <laughs> stud who can just get it with the German lady. And so you my question is like, was he having sex with the cousin like in scenes that we don't see? And so he knows he does have this ability to like manipulate women sexually or is he faking it until he makes it with the German lady and then he that mm. unlocks mm. um a, a new level Ger- of the his German lady is, is so nice the German lady is so like open and friendly to him that he can almost like practice like with her like without being as scared right yeah and and what I think what makes him so nervous about the whole cousin situation is the transgression and and the fact that it is happening well, also, in the middle the ribbon of go? everyone's view. Well, also, I mean, where's the ribbon? Truly, a terrifying question. <laughs> I mean, if he's going to go through with the duel, I would say that he's you know pretty infatuated, right? And maybe you know going all the way, right, is going to like really motivate him. You're, versus... Are you saying? Having gone all the way will motivate yeah. him, or the prospect yeah. like of getting to go all the way once you oh, win the duel. Wow. Yeah, like is know. he gonna is he gonna kill go to get far. it in? Right. Would you get killed to get it in? It's a really good question. I don't know. Uh, I don't either. Um, <laughs> but 
I, I, I wonder if it's like we're seeing his origin story. It's like this is the sure. last time he was scared rooting around in a woman's bosom for a, for a ribbon. Like, yeah, we all have our first time where we're scared of doing that. But after that, Barry Lyndon was great at three things. Dueling, fucking, and I don't know, lying. Gambling. Well, <laughs> yeah, lying, sure, basically. gambling. Yeah, right. He's Is he good at gambling or is no. he just good at cheating? No, no, he's, he's terrible. Yeah, he's, terrible. He's, he's good at lying. Yeah, he's good at cheating. <laughs> There's also something to, I mean, at the beginning of this movie, he's, you know, you're, you're in this... Uh, there's no, there's no social scene in this time, right? There's not a TGI Fridays he can go do to, to pick up women. So there's it's a like, pub. there's a pub, but it's still like, what are my options? Fuck, I really want to fuck my cousin. Yeah, you know, to some degree, he needs to get out there and, and find some other people. Well, there's also the class system too, right? Which is like a right. big way of how you decide who you're going to get with in the right. first. So right. it's like these, and he's this like is where just you are. high this enough is, that he doesn't have to take care of cows all day, right? But like no yes. higher. And but he doesn't all the get more, to marry his cousin. It's all the more torturous yeah. to him. Like yeah. the only woman in his Im- immediate vicinity who he is interested in is the woman that he should not be with by any means. And there's no way to keep it a secret. You know, everyone knows. They know what the fuck he's up to. Uh, yes. And uh, what happens is he has to fight in a duel with the priggish John Quinn uh, and he shoots him. And so he has to run away. Uh, dueling obviously kind of the funniest thing in this very funny movie yeah uh and kind of the best representation because like barry Lyndon is basically about how like you know 18th century europe is just medieval and barbaric but everyone is dressed up and has fancy wigs and has powdered faces and it's like oh after you sir Right, uh, right. this performative you know, sophistication to of like this, let themselves like, believe they've evolved as a muck, society. You know, just evil, yeah. amoral muck. And so, of course, the funniest thing is the idea that when we duel, we're just like, well, I shall shoot at you and then you shall shoot at me. You know, this is all very proper. It's um, also just so funny that this is a work that everyone in Barry Lyndon's life conspires together to be like, we got to get rid of this fucking guy. What will actually get him to stay away? And it's like, we got to make him think that he will face serious repercussions for a death that, in fact, never happened. And his only recourse is to run as far away as possible and never look back. Hey, but Barry's doing it for love, whereas they're all doing it for money. So who's right and who's wrong? Do you see what I'm saying? Pro Barry, sure. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, expressed I, I'm still maybe a li- well, leaning think, a little pro Barry. You're no, no, Barry's advocate. We are all. I don't know if don't you know feel this, Karina, but like early in the film, you're fairly pro Barry because Quinn is such a jerk, and Barry seems like more of an honest boy, and yeah, he gets. You I mean, know, it's complicated because you don't want anybody to fuck their cousin. Um, no, like even true. back then when lo- <laughs> options were limited, especially in England, I can say this as a half English person, you know, I mean, certainly mm-hmm. entire families were started amongst cousins, but, um, it's not what you want. And, um, certainly not a first cousin. You I don't do, be, yeah, but I yeah. also do think that there is something, you know, having seen this movie, um, for the first time as a teenager. And then, you know, I think that you, oftentimes you can, have completely different experiences with films as you age. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that when I was much younger, I did sort of feel like, you know, like Barry is a romantic hero in the beginning. Um, and then watching it at age 42, I feel somewhat differently. Um, but then I also am just so annoyed by the children in this movie now. So, I, I mean, there is this puppy dog 
quality to him up until the duel, where even if he's not sympathetic, he doesn't quite seem like a monster yet, you know? The movie, I would say, tricks you. Well, but he just you, seems stupid. He seems so stupid. That's the thing. And and he's got this <laughs> dumb fucking look on his pretty face where you can sort of feel bad for him by default because you're like, well, this guy doesn't know any better. Yeah. And so the first couple of times he starts strategically lying, it's almost surprising that this guy has the wherewithal. He's so honest when he's being robbed, you know? Yeah. He just yes, like completely he tells he the really truth and it doesn't work guy. out for him. So why no. wouldn't you start yeah. lying? Right. It, it's just like this guy at the beginning of the movie feels like he doesn't know how to take care of himself. He doesn't know how to protect himself. And then he becomes the most incredible sort of strategic thinker. Like right after the duel, his mom and I don't know, his friend, they're talking about him like he isn't there and he's sitting right next to him. You know what I mean? Like they're <laughs> they're letting the viewer know like. This guy is such a moron that people talk about him like this. And also, once again, everyone face. in his life conspired to get him as far away as possible. <laughs> like, they all teamed up. And we're his like, we all included. agree we want him out of here. Mother included. Everybody was like, we just get him fucking out of here. Bad news. The the guy who robs him, Captain Feeney, by the way, is a real highwayman who wrote... Uh, an autobiography that Thackeray loved so much that he was like, I'm going to put you in my book. Wow. So he's being robbed by like a famous highwayman like that. So when that guy's like, look, I've heard a lot of stories. Yours is pretty good, but uh, money, please. Like that does not change. Um, so Captain Feeney, the highwayman steals his money. So he has no recourse except to join the British army. Uh, and the first thing he does, well, no, I guess the first thing he does is he, 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 fights the guy the other guy in the army right is that is that before the battle we must yes, form right. a square yes right another example of ridiculous gentlemanly rules being imposed on like brute violence but also just immediately wanting to stir up shit when he gets there you know it it, it almost feels like he has he's he's fresh meat at a, at a prison trying to prove his worth so everyone backs off I love the guy feeding him lines. He's so great in that scene. Yeah. Uh, I also love his captain. What's his, you know, his first, Captain Grogan, Godfrey Quickly oh, is the actor. That guy's a, that guy's a G. He's also uh, kind of a scoundrel and that's why they like each other. Right. Uh, I believe he's also, he's a prison warden in Clockwork Orange. There's a lot of overlap with Clockwork Orange in these casts. Um, because and and with the shining as well, you know, Kubrick reused guys. But it does feel like all um, these supporting yeah. actors are giving uh, Monty Python performances totally. in in like a good way. Yes. You know, like they're all right. on this wavelength that everyone other than Barry is. They're sort of all playing the humor that Kubrick recognizes, and Barry is very straight and steadfast in it. Uh, uh, Corporal Tool is the one he fights at the beginning, right? It sounds right. Who's yeah. Pat Roach, who's like that stuntman who exists yeah. five times over the Indiana Jones movies, plays like the German mechanic and the thuggy guard, whatever. It's just this ultimate like big British unit tough guy for smaller heroes to fight. He's he was also uh, he's in he's the bouncer at the milk bar in Clockwork Orange. That guy. Yes. Yes. Uh, I really like all of that. But I mean, the thing I like the most just is the depiction of the seven years war. It's just it's just just walk that way. Slowly, don't even run. Just walk while we play the fife and the drums, 
and they're just going to keep shooting at you until you get to them. And that's when we'll, and then, then that's, that's when we unleash our deadly counterattack. Songs uh, catch you though. Yeah, 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 definitely. That, I, I, I was whistling it this morning. Ben was, setting up for the episode. Ben was air drumming in the theater. It was headbanging too. And it. then you turned to me and you said, you just never get a good timpani in movies. <laughs> you don't. But yeah, I don't know. Any, what what did anyone make of all the sort of British war stuff? Like, it's it's really just that. He deserts pretty quickly. He deserts in like the first skirmish, right? Once Grogan is dead. Yeah, I don't blame him. I mean, I, you know, every time I we have to talk about a war movie on this podcast and I just spiral at the thought. But it's like, yeah, do what Barry Lyndon does. Do anything you can to get out of there as quickly as possible. Also, like, there's and, no and, internet. Like, you know, nobody's going to be able to Google him and find out who he is. So Yes, yes. It's true, yeah. And that's when he encounters the beautiful Frau Lieschen, uh, who's that actress? It's She's great. Gay something? Um, is it Gay yes. Hamilton? No, 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 no. Gay Hamilton. Oh, that's is, the uh, cousin. Is Nora. That's the cousin. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Oh, oh, Diana Corner is her name. Yeah, she's a nobody. It's it's not a nobody. That's rude. But she she didn't do a lot of movies. Um, this is maybe her only English language film. It seems like she mostly did German films. But that I feel like that is the first scene, like Karina was saying, where suddenly it's like, oh, Barry is like flexing his charm muscles in ways we haven't seen before. Yeah, and even though he is still a dope who barely knows how to you know, stay one step ahead of a conversation. But he, he's he's weaponized it. Yes. Uh, and then after that is when he encounters Captain Podsdorf and uh, briefly pretends to be on his level, but is arrested, uh, essentially, and, and enlisted in the Prussian army. Okay, and, it's not that yeah. easy to impersonate an officer. Right. Well, Give him sure. some credit. I feel like I feel like I'm just I'm gonna keep defending Barry a little bit here and there. Like I don't think we could pull that off necessarily. I also just think it's it's kind of stunning to watch how quickly he swerves. Yeah. He's arrested for impersonating an officer and he's like, okay, but hear me out. What if I started fighting for you guys? <laughs> right. Well, it's all he can do, really. I mean, it's it's that or be shot. I don't think he's left with much of a choice. Yeah. yeah. But you're just you're saying you're impressed that he just he just uh he well, he makes the most of the situation, right? I mean, then yeah. then he yeah. saves the guy's life, and then the guy is like, okay, well, we're just going to make you a spy. Right. He, he's like a hermit crab of status. He just constantly needs to find the next shell that he can fit into and ride that out as long as he can until something new presents itself. And it's it's truly just move forward, move up. Well, he truly can't go home, like, especially after he knows that his cousin like did marry that guy and everybody in his town conspired to get rid of him. Yeah. You know, like you can't go home after that happens. Yeah, that's true. There's no looking back. Yeah. He can't go home and be like, I found out that you guys staged an elaborate duel just to make me leave. Like, that's too embarrassing. Yeah. So uh, instead, he joins the Prussian army, which is worse. Yes. I mean, it's almost like, you know, the again, like being a British person, like I have it like very deeply in my DNA, this class consciousness and this understanding of, of how for most people people in British history, this feeling that like where you're born into is where you die and it's hopeless. And like, there's so much discouragement to even try to rise. Um, and so when you are somebody like him, who's like, I, I can't go back to where I'm from. So I have to scramble to something else. Um, on one hand, it's like, there is a, 
even more of a desperation than there would be in another society. Um, but the, on the other hand, you're also hated by everybody else. Karina, I did not know you were British. Yeah. I am also British. Wait, I'm yeah. sorry, what? My my on my dad's side of the family, um, Longworth. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and that should have been it. Should have been a yeah. tell. Maybe. So it's like I'm Eastern European Jew on the maternal side. So, Karina, we're the same. Oh, I mean, great. we're not exactly the same, but I'm a, my mother is an Eastern European yeah. Jew and my dad was an Englishman. Yeah, so um, uh, I have, yeah. you know, I'm short. I don't know what to say. <laughs> have, oh, I'm tall. I, I have Wait potato farming legs on both sides. Okay, <laughs> sure, sure. Um, yes, I am English, Griffin. Did you know that? No, I hadn't heard that. I can't believe it's only coming up now eight years into the yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway. Um, you're right, of course. I mean, and like Barry Lyndon's class, like you say, it's not like he's not, when the movie's beginning, he is not like a peasant, obviously. Like he has enough status that he can sort of see into, you know, the, the higher echelon of society. That's He why has enough to know what he doesn't have. Right, he's scraping more against acutely it. aware, right. And I guess one thing I love is it's like, is Barry good? We, we, you know, he wins a medal in the Prussian army for like saving his uh, captain's life, but like we never see him being good at being a soldier. I feel like Kubrick's like that's irrelevant. Like, well, he's I'm like not shooting out of in, that like, window. Heroism. Yeah, he shoots sure. out of the window. Yeah, yeah, right. We get that one thing. The portrayal um, of war is funny in that no one's screaming. Everyone's just kind of like, just like it's matter of fact in a weird way. They get shot too fast to scream. Yeah, and it's I think true. it's also what David's saying of like, this is a time when they are really trying to dress everything up in an air of civility yes. and class to act like war is no longer barbaric. It It is just so funny to watch a movie like this and think about like, people in war used to dress so fancy. You had to be a gentleman, of war. Yeah, right. You know, right. whereas now everything is like tactical, functional, practical. It's like it, no one looks better than the soldiers on the front line of a war. They have very nice jackets. It's true. Yeah. Little gold buttons. Yeah. And they're just I mean, going to be was, shot and fucking pushed into the mud. Well, it was partly also like they wanted to, to you know, get you into it. They wanted to recruit you, right? It's like, yeah. hey, you're going to get a nice uniform. You're going to look fancy. You're going to be a hero. It's the best uh, clothes it, that a lot of people ever had. Right, 100%. And and it does, of course, work for Barry. Like, it's enough for him to at least get a foothold again. Obviously, mm -hmm. the Prussians just want to use him as a spy. Uh, and it makes sense that they do, but he is also the worst spy ever because on his first spy mission, he, like, two sentences into his spy, like, you know, cover story is like, I, I have to tell you something. I'm an Irishman like you, and I think you're just grand, and they want to spy on you, but I think you're great. I think he uh, does that on purpose, though. I don't think yeah, he's no, being definitely. dumb. He I think sees he's being calculated. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so, right? I, the, this is to the, to the Chevalier, uh, Patrick McGee, as the... The che Chevalier. Mm. Uh, great look. Love it. No, it, no, it's great. Every performance in this movie is great. Yeah. He's kind of my favorite, though. Well, I do like Doc. I do like um, John Quinn. And, um, and then Liam Vitale's amazing. And then Marissa Berenson's amazing. Yeah, everyone's really good in this movie. I feel like he, the che Chevalier, like, he, he almost looks like a wizard or something. Like, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like, the way he's styled, it's like, it makes sense that he's a famous gambler because he, he almost looks like just sort of like a magical being. Like, why else would he be so good at this this game of chance? It's so great when Barry dresses up like him. Yes. 
So a couple diamonds on the face, and uh, we're done, right? Little red cheeks. Uh, they become so yeah. So instead of spying on the this guy, he becomes a confederate of his, and they just go around cheating at cards, <laughs> cheating the richest people on earth at cards, and anytime they are accused of cheating, Barry duels with them and wins. Right? That is that is essentially their con. Yeah. Right. Is there anything more to it than that? I mean, that's this is the part of the movie that would be a TV show. Like if somebody was like, "Let's reboot Barry Lyndon," like that's where you start, <laughs> probably. So, like, every week it's, like, a new foppish count that they have to get one over on? Yeah. But also, yeah, I mean, like, I I do think Paper Moon is probably his best performance in terms of him consciously knowing what he's doing. He is incredibly good at playing con men. It, it is a thing that Ryan O'Neill is a perfect fit for. The the combination of, of charm and sort of uh, ruthlessness. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and he's Loki, very funny. And uh, these scenes are very beautiful. This, this is where there's so much of the, the candle lit, indoor, warm, dark uh, atmospheres, mm-hmm. right? The, like, you know, and just the weight, like the negative space, like just these gigantic, empty fucking houses where like basically none of them are being used. Like every time you just see a little table set up in one of those rooms. And there's just nothing around anyone for a mile. It's it's. I feel like I'm. I, I mean, I am always laughing. Like it's it's always, it's so hilariously impractical to live in these houses. It's also got to be really cold inside. Like those so fireplaces cold. can only heat up so much, which gives them excuses to wear these coats indoors. I mean, that's my favorite thing about Lincoln, the Spielberg movie, is how everyone's got like blankets on all the time because it's so goddamn cold. Like the, I, I wish we saw more of that in these periods. Well, so just he, everyone's just wrapped in blankets. He's also cloaked in immense power. I mean, it's both. It's blankets and power. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so wait, wait, why does this all fall apart? I guess they eventually get rumbled, and that's when he dresses up as the Chevalier and gets, like, escorted out of Prussia. But then it and gets they just better. Go around, right, then they're just going around Europe having fun. Uh, and they go to Spa. Y'all ever been to Spa? Spa, Belgium? The town spas are named after? Uh, no, no, is it really, is that really where the spa comes from? Yeah, that's where he meets Lady, uh, Lady Linden. That's where he meets, uh, Marissa Berenson in Spa. It's it's literally called spa. It made the made the list of great spa towns of Europe, which is which is good. It would be embarrassing if they didn't make that list. You got to keep your legacy upheld. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Uh, so this is you know this is when the high times are about to be over. This is part one's about to conclude. That you know the the Barry Lyndon experiment is going to enter the aristocracy. But but as uh, Ben said, yeah. he's become a gentleman. Then he pulled it off. He he gets married. Um, but uh. This is pretty much everything is pretty much bad times, right? In part two, there's no, the comedy is is very bitter in the second part of the movie, whereas I feel like it's it's much more straightforward in the first part. Yeah, he's also reached the ceiling of how high he can possibly go. I mean, this guy's survival has been based in just moving forward, right? No one can really catch up to him because he never stops, and now so he's very- forced to stop. Is he so shitty at being an aristocrat because he knows he's not one? Like, is that why he resents Bullingdon so much? Why he's so abusive? Why he's, you know, like, is it just because he knows, you know, this isn't him, like, in- inherently? Is-, is it a sort of a self-doubt kind of thing? 
I, I think it's part self-loathing, and I think it's also this guy is insatiable, and now he has nowhere further to go. You but know, and he starts he... sort of self-destructing. I don't think he really even thinks about it that way. I think, like, like the scene behind you, Griffin, like, that mm-hmm. scene to me is him being like, like, I already have everything I want. Um, I will not, like, I can't lose it. Um, and then I don't think he really thinks that he has to try to get more until his mom is like, you need a title. Yes. But his mom is sort of right in a way in that she's sort of like, you're not you know, everyone wants to get rid of you. She's not wrong to to notice this. You need an insurance policy. Right. But I, I just don't, like, why why be so mean to Bullingdon? Like, if you just... Bullingdon sucks. Bullingdon's trying to get he's rid annoying. of him. <laughs> I, the kids in this movie are just, like, that. that's when, like, Barry gets my empathy back, is, like, every time he has to deal with a kid. Because they're all right. terrible. I mean, even Brian is like, oh, where's my pencil? <laughs> yeah, but also, David, you oh, ask, like, why is he so mean to Bullington? Bullington is born into a status higher than Barry can ever achieve. Right. Like, Barry's made yes. it basically to the top of the mountain as far as he can go. And here's this little shit kid. And this kid is already a step ahead of him, a step further than he'll ever be. I mean, obviously, the big breaking point for Lyndon is that he, like, beats up Bullington in public. Uh, and that is when he basically has to exit high society. Yeah. But like, but if you're th- this guy what- and you've like killed and lied and cheated to get to this point, and then here's this little shit, and this is his starting point. This is like home plate. Yeah, and for also him. the little shit is like you know clearly incestuously in love with his mother, um, yes. and like you know Barry can spot that from a mile away. It's competition. Yeah, but you also think know thyself. Like Barry's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know from being a mama's boy. All right, like right. I, I know your game. Uh, we haven't really talked about Marissa Berenson yet. She's incredible in this movie, but she is just kind of like, you know, this like this painting person. Like she's so incredible to behold, and she's so sort of sad and uh impressive I, I don't know i mean he and cast her off of yeah in cabaret a couple years before this we cabaret, didn't talk about yeah. her much in the cabaret episode but she's excellent in that as well i love how her hair gets bigger as she gets sadder <laughs> yeah. like her emotions are feeding up her skull it feels very real to me it feels like how you know like women as like they're trying to hold on to like their youth and like feel things slipping away get more plastic surgery and start looking like yeah alien monsters and feels like that time period version of that right let's just make the hair bigger that'll that'll draw the eye yeah yeah he loved her in cabaret and he called stanley donan i guess who knew her Mm -hmm. and basically grilled stanley donan on everything about her and then he just offered her the part kind of classic kubrick he doesn't even he just sort of like talks to you for a while and then he's like anyway you're in barry linden (laughs) uh she had to stay in ireland for the first part of the film she's not in the movie she literally stayed there for three months while they were making all that part of the movie and he demanded she be on set yes well okay if she's on set then it's not well we're available i know i don't think she was on set yeah and as i said he would write her little letters to talk to her uh, but she loves him. She says uh, they have his people have an image of Stanley's this difficult ogre. He wasn't at all. He's a perfectionist. But every great director I've worked with has been a perfectionist. You have to be to make extraordinary films. And uh, yeah, 
Whereas Rhino, and she says Ryan O'Neill was okay and would crack jokes and try and make me laugh, which she didn't appreciate. Uh, Ryan O'Neill said of her that she was vacuous, giggly, and lazy. Uh, Ryan O'Neill, just a, a huge asshole. <laughs> Uh, and that's a contemporary interview in Time Magazine. He's given that interview the week this movie's coming out. Back, I mean, Karina, I'm sure you encountered this a lot for your own podcast, but people really went off in like on like press day, like back then, because it was just going to be in a magazine and not get further, I guess, spread around the internet or whatever. Like, yeah, people could be so mean. I think there was an element of that, but they're also like they didn't do junkets the way they do junkets now, where you're just right. like doing a hundred interviews in a day and you just like memorize the thing to say and then you can kind of go to the other place in your brain and go on autopilot. You there know? wasn't media training. Yeah. But but I do think there is that thing where it's like even if you're being interviewed by Time magazine, you know, a magazine with this humongous circulation, anything you say in your mind, next week there'll be another issue. Like there's no permanence to this. Maybe sure. people remember it, but it'll probably move on. The idea of these things being sort of like cataloged forever and not only that that in our modern world any outlet you talk to essentially has the same circulation as any other because it's all ending up on the same place it's ending up on the internet but which I, everyone has access to i will say that like i think from the in the 70s 80s 90s like something was happening that wasn't happening in hollywood media before that which was that if you did like give an incendiary interview to time magazine or rolling stone or something then they would start talking about it on the radio and on tv and sure, so it would right. have more of a media life cycle and like if if they start talking about it on like you know nightline or or 2020 or what like the today show then it becomes national and it like is broadcast to people who would never see the magazine that that's a good point i mean obviously like when the studio system had total control over everything up through about like 1967, then that disappears, and but then a new control is attained basically by around the late 70s. Right, the new Hollywood shift of you no longer have Eddie Mannix type people who are doing everything they can to manage a very specific image they want each star to represent. But then you get Pat Kingsley's. Yes, that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, also like again to be clear. Ryan O'Neill is a special brand of jerk. Like, it's not like everyone not was just was dissing that, their yeah. co-stars right in Time magazine. Um, but I do think Berenson is amazing. I, I And, it, you know, it is one of those, like, it's such a quiet performance. So much of it is, like, still much, you know, like, but, like, when the movie is in its sort of desperately sad final act, like, mm-hmm she feels very human like she doesn't feel like some you know picture perfect countess like her her breakdown does feel like very like romantic and operatic but it is it is uh believable it, it's know. a it's a very soulful performance i mean she does not have that much dialogue in the film but it's yeah. not like kubrick is just using her as a model you know as an object i mean you there there is bone deep feeling and so much of her arc plays out over looks, you know? It is her reaction. I mean, when she catches Barry in the act, mm. she plays that so incredibly well. You see, you know, whereas Barry's kind of inscrutable and you cannot figure out what this guy is thinking, I do think you see play across her face her running through her lack of options. I, I guess my frustration with Barry in act two is it's like, 
obviously he's never had any class. That's not the Barry Lyndon experience. But couldn't he have a little class about how he's going to cheat on his countess wife or, you know, be mean to his stepson? Like, he's just making out with ladies in public. Like, he can't, you know, act the part as required for, you know, high society. He's new money and everyone yeah, knows it. He's the he newest hide. damn yeah. money that could ever be money. He's so yeah. new. But I also just he's, think that he correctly assesses that she's not going to divorce him. Right. You know, she's right. not like no matter how much Lord Billington like says, "Mummy, you must get rid of him." <laughs> she's not going to unless like something catastrophic happens. Yeah, it, or in, unless she in, meets another dude, which clearly she doesn't. In lieu of him having any further social strata that he can climb, the only way for him to grow is to flex his power within that position, which is just pretty much being flagrant about everything he does. He no longer needs to hide it. But he's like a squatter in like some luxury apartment. But that's what like, I mean, he's can a guy. You leave, and he's like, no, I ain't right. leaving. He's a guy who's constantly pushing up against the walls of wherever he is, right? Um, yes. And so I mean, he the, just gets to this point where he's basically challenging them. What Karina said of like, what are you going to do? You're going to kick me out? No, you're not. I can do whatever the fuck I want. You can't touch me. You think that's what it is? He, yeah, sure. I don't sure. think it's, I don't think he's, he could ever verbalize that. I don't think he's thinking about it that way. I think he's animalistic though. I think it is what drives him. He needs more. He needs some new rush. When he's conquered something, he needs a new challenge in front of him. He also knows the system's rigged. Yeah. So, I mean, like, why, like, why not cheat and lie and do all these things if it's like rigged against you in the first place? Why play it fair? Why play it straight and end up like a blacksmith or whatever? Not that there's anything wrong with being a blacksmith, but no, it's pretty cool actually. Oh, it's hard work. It's a lot of hammering. Seems like a lot of work. I don't want to say I want to do it, but it burning looks your cool. skin. Yeah. No, it looks cool. Like for like an hour. I mean, you well, know, I there's an open question as to like. We see what happens when Barry Lyndon is like the the most nouveau 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 riche guy like at like the top level of the class structure. Would he have been happier being like the big fish and like the on the lowest level, like just being like the hottest guy that like everybody <laughs> thinks is super cool amongst like the working class? I I don't think this guy would ever truly be happy. That's the thing. I I think he just always will want more. It's why he sort of starts self-destructing once he finally gets to the place he thinks he wanted to be at. He would be good, though, as what Karina's talking about, which is essentially like the coolest guy at the soda shop in like the 50s or whatever. Like yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, he that probably would be his biggest strength because like he can't handle it. He can't his even as a father, he's a bad father, too. It's his most sympathetic, you know, uh, badness or what, you know, his most sympathetic negative quality because he is at least an indulgent father. Like he's not like a complete asshole to his kid, but he's still bad at it. He's he's not he's not making any kind of long range thinking. Uh, and you feel for him when his son dies, like terribly. Like I actually found it difficult to watch this time, and I've seen this movie a lot of times um, because think... I forgot that it was drawn out. I forgot, sure. you know, that the boy goes back to the bed and all that. Don't um, you think so much of his love for his son, though, is that his son represents? It's the opposite of everything he hates about bullying. Yeah, right. It's his sure. Here's well, this it's tangible. Narcissism. 
it's narcissism. And it's also, I think he, like, he views him as an object of success. Look, I yeah, created his someone foothold. who yeah. was born into a higher class than I. Absolutely. It's not just my insurance policy, but it's like, what an amazing accomplishment. He'll be raised into a higher class. He'll be educated. He'll, yeah. You know, he'll have everything, you know, that, that Barry didn't have. He's this tangible evidence that, like, Barry beat the system. And once he's dead, it really is, like, what is anyone doing here? All of this like, is meaningless. That, right. right. Everything just kind of collapses into super depression. Uh, and it is... I do find... I find that the, the last act of this movie, like, painfully sad. Like, it does work on me. And then... I think it kind of has to, right? Like, otherwise, you would really detach from the movie. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we, sh we should talk about Vitaly both, like, in this movie, in this performance, and also just his legacy within the, the Kubrick sort of world, uh, especially because he so recently passed. I, having not seen this movie until recently and just knowing the narrative of, oh, here was this promising up-and-coming actor and he completely abandons his acting career to become Kubrick's personal assistant, I did not realize within that that he is like the third lead of the movie. I always he's assumed, oh, he's got some small part in the film. That was the level his career was at. And he was so compelled by Kubrick that that's what he was giving up versus this is really kind of a low-key star-making performance. Yeah, I agree. I think he's excellent in this movie. I mean, it's what I think of when I think of Liam Vitale, obviously. But yeah, I, and I do like, think he's really good. Basically carries the last hour of the film. I mean, the most important thing Bullington, like the most important moment for Bullington is when he accidentally shoots, when when he, you know, when he uh, <laughs> prematurely discharges. And truly perhaps one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a movie. Right, the real fear and embarrassment on his face like especially since like this whole thing has been designed to like they've summoned him back can you please get rid of this guy like can we be done with Barry Lyndon yeah. and he blows it and the the like brilliance of everyone having to be like well uh he is allowed to shoot at you now sorry and Barry finally does like his one magnanimous act of not shooting like Barry should shoot Billington in the head I, right. I don't know what you guys think Right? I mean... Yeah. Yeah, no, it's the one time he stops operating from a place of self-defense. He, he's he, a, he's trying to be a classy English gentleman, right? They're yeah. all, even the English gentlemen present are impressed, even though they hate Barry Lyndon. Also, Barry Lyndon's they, been drinking all night, and they, like, <laughs> woke him up at dawn in the chair that he fell asleep drinking in, and, like, he can have that, you know, that, that this is how he behaves. So... I do think that that is a moment where you can um, be like, you know what? Maybe he learned something, but uh, it doesn't work out. Right. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, he pays the price for it. Uh, right. Like, you know, his one moment. It's it's hard to tell, though, if he's learned something or if he's just given up. You know, there's a part of me that wonders, like, is he just so exhausted at this point? He knows the end is coming for him one way or another. You know, he can't outrun this forever. Um, the bill's going to come due. It's just much like the the ribbon sequence at the beginning. Kubrick just draws out Bullington's reaction to the misfire for so fucking long. So I think I think Vitaly plays it so well. Right. It's so it, it's it, very it, funny and also a little scary. Yeah, it just truly feels like you're watching it's him so for five minutes as the just the tension builds of knowing it's Barry's turn next. And and him puking, him shaking, 
I mean, all of it is so incredibly funny. It's it's played so beautifully. And so straight. And so, you know, right. Like, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, he's he's very pretty. He was a very pretty young Englishman. Really feels like one of those sort of like swinging London looks. Yeah. And then and then he pretty much transforms into looking like an incense salesman for the rest of his life. Yeah. He looks like a roadie. Like, right. I mean, <laughs> God like, bless him. He, it's It was always so odd the last 20 whatever years when he was the spokesperson for the Kubrick estate and he would come out. You're just like aesthetically and vibe wise. This guy feels so different from our cultural impression of Kubrick. Um, but yeah, I mean, by all accounts, it was just he was so enamored with Kubrick and his process and his art and his mind that he just kind of felt like serving this guy will be greater than anything I could do on my own. Fair. Which is just a yeah. thing. It, it, is, it is hard to even think about anyone doing that today. I mean, I was trying to explain this to Ben in the theater, and he was like, what do you mean? He did this movie, and then he stopped acting and became the guy's personal assistant? He also, you know, he worked on um, the Todd Field movies, right? Like, yes. He even he would pitch in for, like, the Kubrick acolytes. He was kind uh, of a, yeah. a mentor to, yeah, the people who were trying to follow in the in the footsteps. And obviously, you know, we, we'll cover in, in future episodes other tasks, but him being the main person who had to find Danny Torrance for The Shining, being the main person coaching Arlie Ermey to be comfortable on camera, and then playing like seven different roles in Eyes Wide Shut. I mean, you know, a lot of his time was spent being this guy's body man in like years and years and years of development in between movies. But then once... Yeah. The movies were actually going. He was very integral to the productions in all these different ways. Yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. You know, Barry fucks up his entire life. He his son dies. His wife essentially first turns to drink. Well, no, Barry turns to drink. His wife sort of turns to religion. Tries to kill herself. We didn't talk about her sidekick. Oh, the, the reverend looking priest guy. His face. Oh my god, he looks like a rat man. Also, by the way, like, again, I just want to say again, like, so many people have to, like, be laying down on the job for Brian to get to the horse. And one of those people yeah. is Runt, you know? Like, yeah, even, he sucks. Ba- even Barry is like, he walked through your bedroom, like, to get out of the house. And Runt was like, I guess I was asleep. I don't know. I don't know, bro. Um, and where's the mom? <laughs> Like, no servant stopped this nine-year-old boy from walking out of the house? Everyone fucked up. But is it a commentary on, like, obviously Barry et al. are terrible parents. They're not, like, keeping an eye on him. But because he's, like, the little lord, like, no one else dares say, like, now, Master Brian, you can't be riding a horse. Like, like, no one can actually say no to him. Yeah, also at the stable, like... I mean, maybe it was so early that everyone was asleep, but like, how does he get to the horse once he he gets to the stable? Uh, Look, again, there's nothing to do. Even if you're the richest people in the world in 1773, there's absolutely fucking nothing to do all day. And so maybe Brian's been watching people ride horses just for a year and is like, yeah, I know how to do this. Like, I know how to get the horse. I know how to get on it. I know how to ride a horse. I love horses. Also, like the only way Barry really knows how to express love to his son is to give him every single thing he wants, you know, and it is that sort of time loop thing of him trying to give this kid the childhood he could not have. So it's like he's never going to say no to this kid because he as a child wanted everyone to say yes to him. 
even if it is not yes. in the child's instinct. He has no protective nature. Like, what could you do back then? You could, like, play the harpsichord and, like, read the Bible? Like, what? what is fun? Yeah. You play St- cards, st- Stick and hoop? Had stick and hoop been invented at that they point? They might not even have stick and hoop The yet. original fidget toy? Shadow puppets are kind of fun. Shadow puppets rule. Yeah. You could play that game they play in Marie Antoinette where you, like, stick the thing on your head. Yeah, right. Oh, like, yeah, Ellen DeGeneres' heads up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know what else you could do. Go look at paintings again. I guess the house is really big. You could just hide a ribbon on your floor. cousin. Maybe that's the problem is that these ki- yeah. this kid doesn't have a good cousin to hide a ribbon with. Yeah, yeah there aren't any girls around. No. Yeah, well, because you can't you can't have women around Barry. He's got to go off off estate to even make out. Maybe because or maybe that's the problem. They didn't even have Cards Against Humanity. God, could you imagine the fucked up things that Barry Lyndon would say if you gave him a Cards Against Humanity deck? Well, he would cheat, though, because he cheats at cards. <laughs> so he would, he would find a way to cheat. Right. Is Barry even... In the first act, he is genuinely horny. <laughs> in the second act, he almost is going through the motions, right? Like, it, he feels more passionless in every respect. Right, like you know, even even the affairs, it doesn't like we don't really see any like, he's like, no, he's like any dead. of these women he's, or he's yeah. dead inside. I do think that's the ultimate reason he gives Bullington the shot at the end. It's sort of this moment of like, what am I even fighting to keep at this point? His life is joyless. It's more joyless when he gets sent back home to his mother missing a leg, but he doesn't seem to get any enjoyment out of anything. Does Barry get another shot at him? Or is it over once Barry gets shot in the leg? That's it. That's my memory, right? No, I mean, I mean, in the movie, obviously, we don't see anything past Barry getting the shot in the leg. But, yeah. like, by all accounts, like, shouldn't he get a shot back? Like, you know, if one you shot a piece, If you can't stand right? up, do you still get your shot? Yeah, is that the, do you have to be able to stand up? Like, I Barry don't know can't the rules just kind of, like, lie on the ground and go, like, all right, stand, stand still. I mean, one thing we observed when we were watching the movie last night is that it seems like the rules of the second duel are different from his duel they with are. Quinn. And yes. so yes. we were, somebody asked me, like, is, you know, do they just make up different rules for every duel? And I was like, well, maybe just, like, because it's, I, it seems like maybe 25 years have passed. So, yeah. you know, yeah. maybe dueling changed I don't know. But so many of the rules feel so arbitrary. Like, it is funny that when Bullington misfires, they're like, well, you know the rules. <laughs> Check in here in the guidebook. Technically, yeah. you are. It is his turn now. It's like, no, what, what is any of this? I, I mean, I do think, like, the duels they're carrying out, right? They're not like... Uh, the duels we think of from like Hamilton or whatever, where, or like, you know, the old West where you're both turning and firing at the same time. Right. Right. Like instead it is this weird, like you shoot, then he shoots. Turn-based gameplay. You really want to win the coin flip, right? Like that's like huge. But, um, but I too, Karina was wondering like what changed in between these two duels and maybe because it's a Kubrick movie, it's like you're, there's no way it's just like narrative convenience. Like I'm sure he dug into just how this all worked, right? Like I also wonder since uh, the first yeah. duel was basically a sham. And, right. and because like, it is, of course. And staged, they know probably. that yeah. they know that Barry, like who is then Redmond, like will not be able to like tell if they make up rules that are not conventional. You know? And yes. then maybe mm. in the second duel, like those are actually the way duels go. Okay. All right. Sorry, I was reading about duels. 
Yes. First blood <laughs> would end a duel. First blood ends a duel. Okay. So even if a wound is minor, once someone is wounded, it's over. So uh, uh, there were other duels where it had to be like to the death. Right. It's funny the way that shifts from it being like, no, one person leaves. Like two people enter, two people, uh, one person leaves to just being like, it's more symbolic. You can scrape a guy and and win. Um, the the method of turning and firing at the same time is called the French method. Uh, whereas what they're doing here is more of the British method of dueling, where mm. you're basically just standing still and agreed upon distance and firing at each other. It's so stupid. I would so say dumb. no. I would say no. I decline. I will I not be doing you today. I refuse to provide you with satisfaction. <laughs> right. What can I do? What can I, I? I'll draw you a picture. Do you? You know? Do you want an oil painting? Uh, I'll give you money. I do not want to just stand twenty paces away from you while you shoot a musket at my face. What's one of those things where you have some rando like at tweeting you trying to start a fight? And you're <laughs> like, I have nothing to gain from engaging with you. Yeah, I will not be going to the field of glory with you. My I friend. walk That's away. Not happening. I mute. Unfortunately. You. Unfortunately, Barry Lyndon could not just block Lord Bullington. So, is Barry Lyndon a, a shit poster? Is that at the end of the day? Is I think that Lord him? Bullington's more of a shit poster. Right. <laughs> Bullington sure, becomes sure. practically a troll. Like he's showing You're up right. to parties and being like, "Barry Lyndon, <laughs> you suck." But Barry what a, does. What a bore. Barry does kind of have posters' disease, even if Bullington's more of a a shit poster. I would say. Yeah. It's just for a while. I guess Barry is at his most successful when he's kind of coasting a little mm. under the radar. And once he's above the radar, he really just pings everyone's. Yeah, it's not It's not good. Yeah. Barry Lyndon, he doesn't. The, the more eyes on Barry Lyndon, the worse he's doing. What's that problem of like the type of person who will do anything to make it to the top? And then once they make it to the top, there are so many eyes on them and so many witnesses to everything they've done to make it there. I think. He's the type of person people don't like for no reason whatsoever. And so well, it's just okay. unfortunately <laughs> part of who, well, I think it's just he's that type of person, though, where it's just like people inherently don't like him. So when he succeeds, they kind of want to see him fail. Yeah, he also fucks over a lot of people. Yeah, he's a dick. He is He is essentially unlikable. In, and he's much like Ryan O'Neal. He is both fundamentally unlikable and an asshole who mistreats people. But also, like, has enough charisma that he can, you know, sort of coast around for a bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I was, uh, for reasons that are hard to even trace back, trying to explain the jinx to someone last night who didn't know about the Robert Durst story at all. And I was basically outlining the series of events for them. And they just said, like, but wait, how did the guy keep on getting away with this for decades? Is he like the most charismatic guy you've ever seen? And you're like, no, the guy is incredibly off-putting. But yet there is something undeniably captivating about him. And part of it is, despite the fact that he's operating from a very high status and doing insane things and committing like horrible crimes around him, he keeps on making you feel like he's the victim. Yes. And there is this fundamental sad sack quality to Barry. Yeah, even as he's face. manipulating the situation, I think it's partially what you said, Karina, too, of just like he comes off dumb. Like you do end up feeling bad for him because you almost question, does he not know any better? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's part I feel... of what makes this movie interesting is you can never totally crack him. 
he is a little bit of an enigma, and it's why this movie needs to have an impartial third-person narrator. Yes, and of course, he's going to win at the end of the day in the final title card because he's going to be dead like everybody else. That's that's only when Barry truly triumphs, when everyone is dead. It's the great equalizer. Uh, the great equalizer. But I just, I think one reason this movie has such a powerful grip on me is I always can't believe Barry is fucking it up at the same. What a life. You're married to a beautiful countess. You live in a nice home. There is nothing better you could expect in society at this point. Just chill. Just be a chiller. But, be, but like, yeah, mm-hmm. David, to throw something back in your face that you said to me, not, not in a vindictive way, wow. but just to repeat words face. back to you, To repeat back to you a very salient point I think you made some months ago. Okay. When when everyone was fucking losing their minds trying to analyze the slap at the Oscars mm-hmm. and what happened and what caused Will Smith to snap in that moment, right? Mm, sure. And you said, like, it's the fact that he was so close to pulling it off. <laughs> sure. Right? He's it's like, sitting there. He's about to be crowned. Yeah. Everyone's, everything's ready for him. Here's everything this guy's been know, working man. for for decades. And the pressure of being that close to it, like, broke him. Sure. It's that yeah. same thing where I think like the fear of losing it fucks up Barry to a certain degree. Once he's gotten everything he thinks he wanted, he he cannot find peace in it. I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but whenever I watch a medieval movie or whatever, I always had the thought of like, who do I want to be here? Because you don't want to be like the king because that's like responsibility and people want to, you know, get rid of you maybe. But like, you also don't want to be some favorite who's going to fall out of favor and the king's going to be like, execute that guy. Mm. He sucks. Like, you know, like, where do you want to be? on? And I just feel like what Barry's got going on where it's like, he's on some estate. No one's bothering him. He just, he just is, he just, if only he could like stay at that level. I mean, you're the one who keeps saying that there's nothing to do. There is nothing so to do. So he's bored. He's bored. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I'd be a wizard. <laughs> You be a wizard? Great call, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I mean to to quote uh, uh, another one of our favorite movies on this podcast. For Barry, the action is the juice, and the yes. life that he's risen to. <laughs> Barry could be played by Tom Sizemore in a different but, movie. But you know what I'm saying? The life that he's risen to has no action anymore outside of him just stirring shit up. Outside of him just fucking making out with other women in public. It's, it's I mean, that's true. why, like the. He would probably like live the happiest version of his life if he just kept on like being part of like the card con and like going from town yeah. to town, cheating rich people. He could still fuck women like Marissa Berenson in every town. Um yes. but you know, he starts to you know, he gets in this situation where he like makes her husband have a heart attack and then I guess he <laughs> that yeah, is- feels like he has to stick around. That is a crazy scene <laughs> when that guy is so mad at Barry Linton. <laughs> Who isn't even in the room? He's like, I'm gonna fucking I mean, die right here. You ask like why so he annoying. can't chill. Like he's chilling in that scene. <laughs> That's the coolest he ever is. Talk is, about yeah. cousins marrying each other. That guy is looking rough. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh man. He looks like I've... a little potato man. <laughs> hey, those are my people. To your point, yeah, Ben. Please watch your language. Uh, yeah. To 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 your point about like his happiest life is probably him remaining a hustler forever. Compare this character to Moses Prey in Paper Moon, a guy who does not want to be a father, 
because the idea of being a father is having to settle down and live a respectable life and create a consistent environment for a child. And it is when his child learns how to play the same game as him and he can just bring her along and use her as an additive to the work he's already doing that he's finally comfortable being at that. He's like, oh, if my daughter can be more like me and I don't have to change any aspect of my lifestyle, then it's fine. Yeah. But he's a shark. He wants to keep moving forward. Yeah. And, you know, she'll come with him. So that's fine. Um. All right. Yeah, we're almost done, I feel like. But is there, yeah, is there anything else we want to say about Barry Lyndon, his life, life and luck? Well, just the, uh, the ultimate joke, the final mic drop of this epilogue card is just like, and by the way, none of this mattered. <laughs> sure. Everyone ends right. up in the dirt. What, who fuck? What a waste of time and energy! Like, you fuck over so many people to what end? Which is just like, the, the final commentary on like the British class system, right? It's like, right. We, yeah, we lived our lives like either in anxiety or depression or constant striving over this thing that we're born into and whether or not we can change it. But what does it really matter? Because you can't take anything with you. And uh, you have at best like a hundred years, right? And, and especially in this era, you're almost <laughs> you're definitely not going to get to a hundred, <laughs> yeah. right? Right. Uh, especially with those uh, inbred genes. But um, I, I also feel like you know the the basic like core cynicism of Stanley Kubrick. I think sometimes people misread a disdain he has for all of his characters, and I actually think he is fascinated by people. And he has a certain love for any individual, but he has a contempt for humanity as a whole. Like what he hates are the structures we create. He creates he hates the society we build, the rules we create of how to interact with each other. And this is a time and this is a person who is so obsessed with those systems and working them. I, I think he does feel some sympathy some empathy for this character and how broken he is that he he cannot be happy right that he needs to work this system to to an ultimate end but uh but yeah it's it's you know at the end of the day it's like what what are you what are you gonna fucking do it doesn't matter none of this matters uh yeah um hmm. i like philip stone who is the butler Sorry, the you know not the butler, the you know Grady, the caretaker, the ghost of the caretaker in The Shining, and mm-hmm. the dad in uh, Clockwork Orange. He's like the guy at the end of the movie who's who's helping Barry. He's got the sideburns. Yeah, yeah. he kind of looks like uh, Dennis from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. Well, well said, Ben. Uh, I just like that he's in a sort of a weirdly sympathetic role here. He's usually kind of scary. Mm. Uh, mostly I think of him as the you know I corrected her uh, you know in The Shining Um, my wife has seen this movie because I've seen it many times humble brag yeah but I was watching it uh, yesterday while my daughter was rampaging around double humble brag my wife was like is this suitable for her and I'm like I was sort of like it's a very gentle movie visually yeah (laughs) like it's not really that intense Uh, but anyway um, but uh and then my wife like was sort of coming around at the end. She was like, what happens at the end? And I was like, you know, they basically pay him to go away. Like, And the final shot is practically just them writing a check being like, eh, Barry Lyndon. Uh, and she went like, oh. And I was like, you know, but it's poetic. It's sad. It's it's funny. Like, it's everything, you know, this movie should end with. It shouldn't end with some dramatic thing. It should end with just like, Barry, go away. Like, God damn it. How often does this happen to this day in our modern society where someone who has ascended to the top of a company 
you know, or the highest heights of fame, finally their behavior catches up with them and they're forced to accept a giant golden parachute to essentially go away and never work again, right? It's all these quote-unquote canceled men who are furious that they're stuck alone in their giant mansion with a $80 million buyout as a punishment for being shitty for decades. And they're like, why won't people let me do shit anymore? And so why, you're saying, why am I forced what? to be on my mega yacht for the rest right. of time? Right, <laughs> right. There's, there's no ability to enjoy the fact that you basically got away scot-free outside of the fact that you have lost the love or respect of any people around you. I mean, you could have more empathy for Barry because, I mean, he lost a leg. Yeah, yeah. You know? At least he lost a leg. Kevin Spacey yeah. still got two. All right. <laughs> I had to pick a specific name. I had to put one person on blast. I think he's a fair target. Uh, yeah, he's. he's Les Moonves uh, has two legs. Yeah, this is the yeah, th- these people. Can you, can you believe they took my career away from me? Oh, I'm so sorry you had 70 years of being at the top of the fucking anthill, and now you have to like stay in your giant mansion, one of your eight mansions you own that will never be taken away from you. Um, some final thing. Obviously, this movie does not have a score. It just has 18th century music. The Chieftains. Uh, yes. Uh, the guy who, you know, uh, helped. The, this movie won four Oscars. It won for uh, cinematography, costume design, and art direction. But it also won best original song score and adaptation. You know, like, you know, back when they had like a best adapted score yeah, category. That's wild. So, so Leonard Roseman won, and he was the guy who helped pick the classical music. Uh, and I just want to read his quote on this because uh, it's funny. Uh, when I saw this incredibly boring film with all this music aside that I had picked out going over and over again, I thought, my God, what a mess. I was going to refuse the Oscar. Uh, so he didn't like Barry Lyndon. That's wow. all. Uh, movie comes out, doesn't do well. The, the tagline for this movie is essentially four Oscars. If you look at the poster, it says four Oscars, Barry Lyndon. I love the way the songs repeat, though. It's funny. It's actually really funny. I oh, think, yeah. When it's they amazing. Call it back. It's incredible every time. Uh, yeah. And and that's uh, Kubrick does that so well. I mean, that's what Eyes Wide Shut as well uses every cue so powerfully. And the Women of Ireland is, is such a good track, though. <laughs> Whenever I hear any of these songs in any other context, I just immediately think of Barry Lyndon. Lyndon, yep. 100%. Yeah, and the, and and the songs immediately become funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it was nominated for Best Picture, maybe, or maybe the most stacked Best Picture year of all time. Griffin, do you? So seventy six is seventy. Yeah, seventy five right. Oscars. Seventy. Yeah, you know. Is this is this Network Jaws, Rocky, Barry Lyndon? Am I am I mixing you're, up two years here? You're mixing up two years, but okay. it, yes, Barry Lyndon, Jaws, uh, R two, and right uh, network Nashville. and Rocky are seventy six. Right, there's the following. Yeah. yeah, okay. No, yeah, Nashville, Dog Day Afternoon, and Best Picture goes to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is probably the worst of those movies, and it's still a pretty good movie. Yeah, that's a pretty incredible lineup. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like the seventies are a largely exciting time for the Oscars. Because even, you know, you're looking through, it's like Isabella Johnny gets an Oscar nomination for the story of Adele H. You know, like there's like fun, weird it's, picks it's, in it's there. Like Carol Kane and Hester Street, Lee Grant and Shampoo. You know, like there's a lot of cool Lena Vertmiller probably got her nomination sometime around 
then as well. Yes. Right? Like 74 when is maybe? Seven Beauties? That That's the next year. Yes. 76. Yes. That's Seven Beauties. Yeah. I, I'd argue it's maybe the best decade for the Oscars in terms of most of their choices holding up pretty well. And, and um, a lot yeah. of them feeling kind of bold. Especially with a movie like Linden, where the reception was mixed at the time. It did poorly domestically. It didn't make its budget back. It did better in Europe. Mm. Apparently, it grossed $3 million in Paris alone, which wow. uh, is sort of funny to think about. Um, but The best you know, city you know, in the it, world for watching American movies. So, makes yes. sense. Yeah, but very true. Um, and, uh, in fact, I think I saw Barry Lyndon in Paris at one point. Not to brag. Um, but... Uh, yeah, like just it does it does get enough of a foothold to endure. Um, do you want to play the box office game, Griffin? Uh, yes, I do. This movie did not do well. We're we're not doing the box office game for Paris, I assume. No, that would be good if I could yeah. summon the box office game for Paris. No, no, this movie came out Christmas time, nineteen seventy five. Mm-hmm. It is not in the top ten, uh, and the number one movie of the year, uh, sorry, of the week is an action thriller starring James Caan and Robert Duvall. Do 75. you know this movie, Griffin? Huh. Yes. <laughs> it's new this week. Uh, it's a fairly famous director late in his career. Okay. Um, he was seen as a bit of a sellout picture for him. Is it like a peck and paw? It's a peck and paw. You nailed it. Yeah. What's this movie called? Uh, it's not called The Specialist, right? Is it a the title? It is a the title. Um, I was reading this article. I went on a Duvall rabbit hole. I feel like I've been talking about him a lot lately. But there's a really interesting People magazine article from, I think, When Tender Mercies is about to come out that refers to Robert Duvall as America's number one, number two. And it was basically That's about this funny. era of the 70s in which he was like the most reliable and valued second lead or support, but he was never uh, able yeah. to make that leading man jump that all of his contemporaries were able to do unconventionally. So I, I fucking know this movie. Uh, uh, it's not called The Specialist. What, what's it called? It's called The Killer Elite. Thank you. Right, because it has the same title as that insane uh, fucking recent Killer Elite movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, James Conn, Robert Duvall. So that's number one at the box office, Christmas 1975. Number two is a spy thriller uh, starring a very, very sexy Robert Redford. The plot of the movie is basically Robert Redford is just so hot that everyone is after him, uh, in my opinion. Three day, I think that's how you should Three Days of the movie. Condor? Yeah. It's Three Days of the Condor. Yeah. Uh, Karina, do you like Three Days of the Condor? I assume you don't have an opinion on one. The Killer Elite. Oh, you should see it. It's so sexy. I actually like uh, Robert Redford is somebody who's, I haven't seen a lot of his movies. It's very strange. The he, ones I've seen are like, you know, Inside Daisy Clover. Like, I haven't seen uh, some of the big hits. You haven't seen, like, The Natural. Or, oh, no, I've uh, seen The Natural because like... I'm a baseball I'm a baseball well, guy. Right, but... it's the best baseball movie. Yeah. Um, you haven't seen this. Well, you must have seen The Sting. I've seen The Sting. Uh, I've seen Butch Cassidy. But, like, Cassidy, you know, if you like get to, like, the, you know, the B-plus level. Yeah, I've right. never seen yeah. Downhill Racer. He's just, like, an actor who, um, you know, for whatever reason, like, I've sort of had... I just haven't gotten around to like doing the filmography. I have uh, watching that Paul Newman documentary. Honestly, I realized how few of his movies I've seen as well. 
I am also bad on Paul Newman. I should is that documentary good? The the, the I thought Hawk it was thing? great. I thought it was really yeah, good. I I I am gonna But you out. have to uh you have to not find Ethan Hawk annoying. I I find Ethan Hawk like endearingly I I think he's a great actor and I enjoy him on screen, but like Ethan Hawk, the guy, I find him endearingly annoying. I was gonna I, say I feel like he's sort of self aware about being kind of annoying. I pretty much come all the way around to finding everything annoying about him kind of charming. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I feel like he's like, yeah, look what I write novels. So what? They're kind of bad, but who cares? He's so Maybe they're good. Earnest. Like he's such a big dork about all this stuff. He's never trying to play it cool, I find. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pro Ethan Hawke. And I'm pro uh Paul Newman, another hottie. But like I think Redford it's like he's like a goy god to me. I've just always been kind of like like oh my god, imagine looking like that guy. You could do anything. Well, I mean, also that's what um, the way we were is about. Right. Right, exactly. <laughs> yes. And, and I mean, if you're Jewish, you grow up going like, well, Paul Newman, that's what we can be. He feels, you know, even though he's the best of us, he's earthier. There's a sense of hometown pride. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, number three, Griffin of the Box Office is a comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, Neil Simon comedy based on his play. I'm giving you that clue because there's just so yeah, many. Yeah, California Suite. I'm just going to pick one. No. Um, uh, let's see. It won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor this year, in fact. Is it? Fuck. Fuck. For its cigar-smoking uh, supporting actor. Oh, oh, oh. It's uh, uh, the Sunshine Boys. It's the Sunshine Boys, yes. Okay. Uh, with Walter Matthau and George Burns. Um, I've never seen the Sunshine Boys. I don't know if you have. I haven't either. I feel like it's a movie no. I would like a lot. Um, number four is Best Picture winner. I just mentioned it. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. Okay. Um, classic movie I haven't seen like since college. Yeah, I think I watched it in high school, and and you know probably on my tiny TV while half paying attention to homework I should have been doing. I should give it another spin. Yeah. Do you have a Cuckoo's Nest take, Karina? Do you care about Cuckoo's Nest? really care about it it's another one of those movies that i watched like in the 90s when there was sort of a like a renaissance of the 70s um yes and uh and also like milos foreman kind of came back in the 90s and um you know there was sort of an impetus to catch up on his filmography yeah he was making fun biopics in the 90s Mm yeah um number five griffin is a comedy starring one of your favorite guys Hmm. Uh, and directed by him as well. And I imagine you maybe have seen it. I have never seen this movie. It has a very long title. 75 comedy starring and directed by one of my favorite guys. Huh. Who Who are your favorite comedy guys? Start there. Right. I mean, I, I, I'm like thinking of the people who either predate or postdate this period. So oh, it's I like, think it's I not know Steve who Martin. The, I think I it's know not Buster Keaton. Who is it? Is it is that a Mel Brooks movie? It's not a Mel Brooks movie. Although it has a lot of Mel Brooks guys in it. This is a Mel Brooks guy. It's it's so is it a Gene Wilder movie? It's Gene Wilder okay. and Madeline Kahn and Marty Feldman are in it. it. It's it's the the adventures of Sherlock Holmes's younger brother, or whatever it's called. I have not seen this movie. It's the adventure of Sherlock Holmes's smarter brother. Right. Which was written and directed by Gene Wilder and starring him. I've never seen it. The Wilder-directed movies are a weird blind spot for me, considering how much I love him. You do love Gene. And he had a pretty successful run of films he directed, starred in, and wrote 
none of which feels like... Greatest Lover, Woman yeah. in Red, right? Those right. are the ones I know, yeah. Like, most of those films were hits at the time, and it feels like none of them have really lasted culturally. This film was a hit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like, a, not a huge one, but it did okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's number five. Some other movies, you've got The Story of O, um, which is, uh, you know, an erotic uh, foreign film. mm uh, so that's sort of probably like an exciting Euro entry at the 75 box office. You've got Swept Away, speaking of uh, Bert Muller, the, you know, Giancarlo Giannini classic. Um, mm-hmm. You've got Mahogany, which we've talked about before, the Diana Ross movie. Yes. I don't remember um, why, but yes, that came up in came some up episode. It came up in some, directed by Barry Gordy with Diana right. Ross and Billy Dee Williams. Um, you've got a reissue of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And then you've got Let's Do It Again, the uh, like Sidney Poitier, um, Bill Cosby. Right, the second movie. Cosby trilogy movie. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is my favorite thing about playing the the box office game, the uh, the web version that a listener of the show uh, so yeah. so wonderfully built out. When you'll see one movie in the top five that has been playing for four thousand weeks, right? And you're just it's like, okay, reissue. which Disney reissue is this? Um, but yeah, so that's, it's a weird top 10, Barry Lyndon, not in it, uh, yeah. but it does endure. And in the end, we're all going to die anyway. So we're all going to die anyway. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Kirk doesn't give a shit if his movie isn't hit at the time. He's going to end up dead. <laughs> he may have given a shit. He, I don't he know. got another movie made. I don't know. Who cares? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. His next movie was The Shining. He does, he does swerve towards bestseller after this. Yes, that I, yeah. I think that was notable, and I think he did want to make a successful film. Like he wanted bestseller to make a with a huge beloved star in a genre yes. that is easier to market. Right. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, that's the story. Ben, as the resident uh, uh, Irish scoundrel, do you have any sort of final takes you want to throw out on this movie? I guess as sort of our our expert. Yeah. Well, we've said a lot about Barry, and you know he's had his ups, he's had his downs, <laughs> but no matter what. He looked damn good doing it. Mm. He had fun and he really made it somewhere in his life. You know, it's not easy to make it out of being just a regular peasant, you know, like he traveled the world. He did amazing things. I mean, I think the guy had an okay life, all things considered. The way you describe it, it's like Barry Lyndon's a dude wearing a live, laugh, love shirt on the (laughs) beach. (laughs) Being like, yeah, I can't complain. (laughs) I mean, he is probably, like, after that freeze frame, you know, he probably goes and lies down in, like, his old childhood bed uh, with his one leg and just, like, thinks about, like, that time where he had, like, a shirtless fight and that time where, you know, he had a sword fight that he won and, like, that weird threesome he had, like, in the middle of the room with all the other people and, like, you know, I mean, he he did have some good times. He bought some paintings. Mm. Um, So... It's a it's a pretty incredible greatest hits reel if you play it back in your head like that. Yeah, you cut out the bullshit in between. Yeah. God bless him. God bless him. And God bless you, Karina. Thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for giving me a chance, um, an excuse to to watch this and talk about it. Happy to provide it. Uh and and truly, you know, I mean, your podcast, I feel like, is such an invaluable research who for anyone doing anything in the world of film. I certainly find myself citing things you've said, you know, both facts that you've pulled up that I hadn't heard before otherwise, but also some of your opinions. I mean, you were talking, you briefly mentioned Ghostbusters at the beginning. 
but we did the whole Ghostbusters franchise on Patreon, and I I tried to, I probably misquoted and butchered a lot of your points about just the weird magic of why that movie works despite all better logic. Um, and yeah, there are just a lot of things you've said about all sorts of different movies and movie history over the years that will rattle in my head forever. We <laughs> we jokingly refer to ourselves as connoisseurs of context, but you are the person who truly deserves that title. Well, thank you. That's really sweet. And I'm glad I can... Uh... I, I hope that other people also like the podcast, and I'm glad I can, you know, be a helpful resource. Oh, oh yeah. It's the best. No. Our, our listeners have been furiously demanding <laughs> you end up somewhere in some episode oh for years, and I, I can't think of a better uh, uh, movie for it to finally shake out on. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, people should listen to you. Must remember this. If that isn't enough of an endorsement. So uh, it, it, the best movie podcast. Ever. You're between you. seasons right now, but Erotic 90s coming up, right? Erotic is that, 90s is, is coming next? up. I wish I could tell yeah. you an exact date. We were going to launch it in November, but now it looks like we might launch it in March instead. It just it hasn't been decided yet. Um, part of the problem is that, like, I can't stop adding episodes. And so, oh, yeah. like, it was... There's a lot of eroticism know, in the 90s. It was supposed the to be 10 episodes. The last erotic decade. Yeah, yeah, it was supposed to be 10 episodes. Now it's 21. <laughs> so wow. uh, it's just going to take awesome. a really long time to make the episodes. But I think you realize Y2K really killed horniness. Yep. It's what we weren't... <laughs> we weren't worried well, about it, that. It drove, we didn't it realize drove it underground. Was, it just I mean, it drove it out of Hollywood. I it's mean, hiding. I'm working on the thesis that Eyes Wide Shut kind of killed a certain type of movie, so... All right. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm interested. Yeah. There's an argument. Certainly, I think, especially so much of the ire of that movie was people going and expecting the horniest movie ever made and being so furious when it wasn't. I mean, they thought it was going to be like Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, like having real sex. Yes. And- right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. I talk about this in the episode. I remember Entertainment Tonight going, we're hearing there might be unsimulated sex in this movie. <laughs> An insane thing to think about Entertainment Tonight reporting on as if like, and there might be a cameo from Robert Downey Jr. back as your favorite Iron Man. <laughs> yeah. There might be a cameo from Tom Cruise's penis. Yeah, uh, going into Nicole Kidman's vagina. Give me a cameo. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. It's been too long. We haven't seen his penis yeah, on screen for decades. It's true. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Karina, thank you for being here. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media and helping to produce the show. AJ McKeon, Alex Barron for our editing. Lane Montgomery and the Great American Owl for our theme song. JJ Birch for our research. Pat Reynolds, Joe Bowen for our artwork. You can go to blankcheckpod.com for links to some real nerdy shit, including our Patreon Blank Check special features. We are finishing up the Roger Moore Bond films, but have also been doing uh, some uh, Kubrick adjacent bonus episodes. We got Doctor Sleep coming up, and we'll just have done 2010. Yep, sounds right. Uh, tune in next week for The Shining mm-hmm. uh, with our buddy Tim Simons, uh, yep. the great actor. Uh, long overdue on the show, uh, a very tall man, one of the few guests we've ever had on who is taller than you. That's right. Is that true? He's he is taller guy. than you. He's very tall. He's definitely taller than me. He's like 10 foot 15. Yeah, he's very tall. The lankiest man in the world. He's built like Jack Skellington, and I love him, and I'm glad he's finally on the show. So thank you all, and as always, Barry Lenz is just kind of a dang-ass freak when you get down to it. <laughs> <laughs>